I'm Las Vegas criminal defense attorney Michael Becker. In Nevada, misdemeanor cases remain on your record forever unless you get them sealed. If your misdemeanor case gets dismissed, meaning there was no conviction, then you can petition for a record seal right away. But if you were convicted of a misdemeanor, there is a mandatory waiting period before you can become eligible for a record seal. For convictions of a first or second time DUI or a first or second time battery domestic violence, you must wait seven years after the case ends to petition for a seal. For convictions of battery, harassment, stalking, or violation of a restraining order, you must wait two years after the case ends to petition for a seal. And for all other misdemeanor convictions, there is a one-year waiting period after the case ends before you can petition for a record seal. Everyone who is eligible for a record seal is strongly encouraged to pursue it. Once your record is sealed, with few exceptions, the misdemeanor case will no longer appear on background checks and you can legally deny ever having a criminal record during job interviews or even under oath. Getting a record seal requires a lot of paperwork and can take several months. So if you have a criminal record in Nevada, call my legal team at 702-DEFENSE. Here at the Las Vegas Defense Group, we can take care of the entire process for you to teach it because you no. literally just packaged all the five years of information and millions of dollars into a course oh, for sure and that's what's dope i mean i list literally like i, I you know all a lot of the stuff stemmed from meeting you guys and seeing how y'all do it and how impactful y'all is like i clearly you can make them all the money in the world but like you can't leave an impact with the money that you make you know what I mean? You gotta you gotta spread it around, spread the knowledge, because the way that I live, I feel like sometimes it's like not fair. You know what I mean? Like I live abundantly, like I can do what I want. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like in a humble way, like I literally have what you feel like is financial freedom, because like I literally, like I told you, I fly for free, live for free, I drive cars that I want for free, and I actually make money from doing this, mm -hmm. and it feels I'm, I'm doing it all based off of leveraging my credit and my social currency. And if I could teach that to a million people, like I would feel great. Like like the impact that we had when we went to Kroger's and gave back and the impact that we had when we went to Walmart and did that. And like even just giving my mom, being able to buy my mom a car, like that feels so much better giving than taking. You feel what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So my happiness doesn't stem from, I didn't get happier because I got a lot of money. I get happier because the stuff that I can, the people I can impact. So when I'm seeing these people on Instagram telling me how this course changed their life and all that, I was like, yo, this is crazy. Like, like I, it just made me feel better. It gave me a purpose. So I, I never really had like a, a, I was never passionate about the cars either. I'm not passionate about them. It's just something I, I it's a play. It's a leverage play. That's why I do the Airbnbs. I'm, I'm leveraging Airbnbs crazy. Like it's a leverage play, but I understand that you can leverage everything. So I want to leverage everything and I want to teach people how to do what it is that I do. Now, if I can make a million millionaires and I can go home and go to sleep like a baby. Right now I'm restless. I can't sleep. So I got to make a million millionaires before I go to sleep and retire my mom this year. So that's my goal. Mm. So my end game, 
retire my mom, make a million millionaires, get into the private jet field and leverage that space. Uh, clearly, my boys like to fly private jets. Right. Neo and them. Oh, oh, Lord. Lord. oh, Lord. Stay on the project. So, you know, they need to come to the kid. Mark, Marcus said he's going he gonna to put me on one. I ain't never been on one. Me neither. I still haven't been on one either. So, I clearly, yo, I'm Marcus pretty sure this Neo, year. man. Come on. What are we doing? What? Yo. Hey, look. And it's affordable know, now. Man. The way they doing, it's affordable. <laughs> like they, but they did it too major. Like, the offer I got, 4000 for the day to go to Miami. Come right back. Mm-hmm. Uh, I might need to stay for the week. I spent 4000 But, uh. Yeah, no, but it's affordable the way they're doing it together collectively. And I do want to say that before I get off here. We're so much stronger together than apart. Like, people don't understand that. And they, and they want to understand how I got so many cars. It's because I know that. I know that fact. I'm, I'm in tune with the fact that we're stronger together. A percentage of something is way better than nothing. Yeah. So if I can make a deal with you and take a percentage, I can make a deal with you, 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 and make a percentage of something. How I'm gonna go broke if I'm I'm, I'm I don't got to do the work in all of these deals. Yeah. You know what I mean? The, the deal is in itself. I understand that if me, you, and three other people go in on a mansion and we rent it out for two thousand a day, I don't got to do all the daily operations. We yeah, together in this, right? Sure. And we we breaking it down, but it's a lot of money when you go into that way. Now we got leverage in there, leverage in the home. Yeah. We get money from living in the mansion. It's like, come on, bro. We can shoot content and this thing. There's yeah. so many things you can do by leveraging things together. Or I can wait all my life to stack up my millions of dollars and get a mansion. Or I can wait all my life and just try to get a Ferrari. Like, oh, I got, look, I do for one more year. Or I can just leverage, and then me and you can make the deal. Yeah. And what I told you about the million dollar thing I told you about when we first walked yes, in here. So there's people don't understand like how to get million dollar loans or two hundred thousand dollar loans. Or, and I told them it's very easy to get these. How do you do that? You actually just go apply for one. That sounds crazy, don't it? Sounds crazy. All right, so let me, let me explain it. So when you want to get a million-dollar loan, you go apply for it, and then once you it just costs you, all it costs you is one hard inquiry. So when you get this hard inquiry, and then you ask them, they're going to tell you exactly why you didn't get approved for a million-dollar loan. What does that tell you? The underwriting guidelines. So when you get the underwriting guidelines, now when you go back the next time, you got everything that it says on that paper. Or if you want to get more detail, you can go and ask them, say, hey, what do, ask the bank manager, what do I got to do to get this million dollar loan? I got, I didn't get approved. Why didn't I? Then guess what? They tell you everything you need. So now I know I need two years experience in my business. I need um, this 800 credit score. I need uh, this many statements. I got the underwriting guidelines. So now I can do a joint venture just like I told y'all. Me and Sham's got all that stuff that I need. <laughs> Sham's, got, Sham's got the two years experience. He got the business revenue of this amount of money. He got the credit score of 800. So look, me and you gonna go on a joint venture. I need to get a million dollar loan. I think we can make a play on a huge distribution center. And if me and you going on it, you can have this percentage. And just because I put it together, I'll let you get the majority because we're using your information to get it. And I'll take a minority, but I'm just going to take a percentage of this deal. That's going to be a lifetime of payment for us. So did we just get the million dollar loan while waiting all our life? Or did I just leverage what I know by just applying for a million dollar loan? If y'all think that's cap, if y'all think that's cap. While in certain counties in northern Nevada, prostitution is legal. Many people are surprised to find out that here in Reno and Lake Tahoe, In Washoe County, prostitution is illegal. 
It's a violation of NRS 201.354. The legal definition of prostitution is engaging or agreeing to engage in any sexual acts for money and or any other compensation. Meaning it doesn't even have to be money. It could be for trade or for drugs or other items of value. You don't even have to go through with the sexual act and they can still charge you for the allegation of solicitation or prostitution. That's critical to know because so many times in a lot of situations you may be conversing with someone you think that you're hitting it off with and it turns out that in fact they are now going to be charging you with solicitation because you came into some kind of agreement unknowingly just joking around. Instagram, private jets, fast cars, and throwing money into the air like confetti were only a few of the posts. Real estate mogul and social media influencer Hush Puppy was known for making. Little did he know, he was leaving a digital trail for all us here at the FBI, and that flaunting led us to the truth a massive money laundering scam. In total, he had stolen $1.6 billion in United Arab Emirates Durham. It's a crime that will leave you speechless. I know I was. Here's the scoop on just how he did it, what he was spending all that money on, and how he was finally caught. Sometimes, things can get pretty slow here at the Federal Bureau of Investigation. I know growing up, I thought it would be like I saw in the movies, you know, arresting the criminal masterminds of the world and bringing them to justice. Look, here's the truth about the job. Not all cases have stories worthy of worldwide news coverage. Spoiler alert, many times this line of work is a 9 to 5 like any other, with a lot of paperwork. But sometimes there's a case that's so out of this world that we feel we've earned our $66,000 per year salary. Hush Puppy was one such case. Here's a bit of backstory on Hush Puppy, in case you didn't know. I know I didn't, but frankly, I'm not on Instagram all that much. His real name, Ramon Abbas. He is a social media influencer and a self-proclaimed real estate mogul from Nigeria. For what it's worth, he definitely knows how to play the social media game. Mr. Abbas has over 2.5 million followers, and at 37 years old, he has made millions of dollars. Dollars he now very publicly spends, and posts all sorts of lavish lifestyle pictures to the internet. And when I say lavish, I definitely mean it. Common posts for Mr. Hush Puppy shows him standing in front of what we can only assume are private jets, going on huge shopping sprees where he is seen splurging on clothes from Gucci, Versace, and Vendi, where shirts can cost $1,000 or more. Oh, and of course, tons of photos of him in front of a multitude of super-fast, 
and super expensive cars. Some of his favorite driving machines are a $300,000 Rolls Royce or his $200,000 Ferrari. But he also lived in an incredibly expensive and exclusive Palazzo Versace in Dubai. He even has videos online of him taking off from a helicopter right from his home on the waterfront. Basically, this man did everything he could to let people know he was rich. Very, very rich. And Hush Puppy soon learned that his talent for curating a social media following, I mean, who wouldn't want to live vicariously through this man's millionaire lifestyle? would give us here at the FBI everything we could ever need to secure his arrest. See, here's the thing about Hush Puppy. He made all of his money illegally by a scheme called money laundering. The idea behind money laundering is simple. Basically, someone will conceal the real source of their money. In Hush Puppy's case, he had stolen millions from banks private investors, and companies by tricking them into putting money into an account that they were then using for their own purchases. When our team here at the FBI got a chance to look at the evidence we'd collected after his arrest, we found phone and email records that contained over 100,000 fraud files and over 2 million addresses that looked to be potential victims. The companies that Hush Puppy targeted spanned over two continents. It was a worldwide crime. He had stolen $923,000 when a paralegal at a New York law firm wired money into an account that belonged to Mr. Abbas. This paralegal had received instructions to wire the money into a certain bank account that Abbas and his team tricked them into using. And that $923,000 was meant to go to a client's real estate refinancing. It instead went to anything Mr. Abbas wanted. But that's just one instance of Abbas's manipulation. He stole $14.7 million from a foreign financial institution, having them send money into a Romanian bank account. Other evidence shows that he also used tricked victims into putting money into United States bank accounts as well. Arguably, his biggest potential scam was when he tried to steal $124 million from an English Premier League soccer club. Luckily, all we know about this attempted scam is just that. It was an attempt. To be honest, this kind of criminal activity makes us FBI agents sick to our stomachs. Last year alone, upwards of $1.7 billion were stolen by means of cyber fraud. It's an ongoing problem that just doesn't seem to go away. Like a scar of guilt that won't fade with time. I'm Las Vegas criminal defense attorney Michael Becker. There is no Nevada law that prohibits the concealed carry or open carry of firearms in casinos. Even if the casino puts up a sign that says, no guns allowed, those signs carry no legal weight. However, casinos are private institutions and can make their own ground rules. Therefore, casino security has every right to order gun carriers to leave the property.
and if gun carriers refused to leave or stay away when asked, they could be charged with trespass. As a misdemeanor, trespass carries up to six months in jail and or up to $1,000 in fines. Plus, the casino could permanently ban the person from ever coming back. Even if a casino permits guns on its premises, it is always a Category C felony in Nevada to conceal carry without a current and valid CCW permit from Nevada or a reciprocal state. The penalties include one to five years in prison and possibly up to $10,000 in fines. But CCW permit holders who simply forget to bring their permit with them face just a $25 civil fine. A lot of innocent people get accused of firearm crimes in Nevada. If you're facing criminal charges, call my legal team at 702-DEFENSE. The experienced criminal defense attorneys at the Las Vegas Defense Group have helped thousands of people get their charges reduced or dismissed while saving their gun rights. Nobody wants to find out that they have an outstanding warrant. And we get a lot of calls from people that have uh, gone to renew their license at the DMV, for example, and found out that they had a warrant. Uh, maybe they were arrested. Maybe they were just told about it. Uh, sometimes people get pulled over and an officer may write them a citation and not actually arrest them on the warrant, but inform them that they have a warrant. But whatever the facts and circumstances may be, it's never fun to find out that you have a warrant for your arrest. Uh, depending on what type of warrant it is, we may be able to go into court for you and have the court quash the warrant. Uh, quashing the warrant basically means uh, when you appear, either personally or through counsel, the court once again has jurisdiction over you. They no longer have to utilize the warrant to arrest you and bring you before the court. When you voluntary, voluntarily appear before the court, there's a pretty good chance that the court will quash the warrant, allow you to remain out of custody until you resolve your legal matter. Uh, a warrant can lie for uh, a felony charge, a misdemeanor charge, or even a traffic ticket. And it's very important to clear up your warrants because obviously uh, nobody wants to go to jail, especially unexpectedly. So um, if you have a warrant, um, call 702-DEFENSE. Uh, when I when I when I go out of town, I actually go to Peachy. Yeah, I Peachy go in at seven fifty a day. Yes. And he said, "Yo, he'll just go down there, you pay the seven fifty, yes. leave, they go pick it That's up." That's what I was doing before I got my lot. And what's right. crazy, I was paying all this money to Peachy this whole time, not knowing that the lot that I was soon to have was right next to it. Right I next had, door. Um, here's the here's the clutch, Hutch Clutch Play. So Peachy, they use a third party called Wait. Uh, Wait, W A Y, W A Y, and I was paying half the price that Peachy charges. On way, on way. Yo, they be having joints for two dollars. That's what bro. I was paying, two dollars. Because this was before I knew about the airport drop. I'm like, I'm not gonna be paying thirty six dollars for these parking tickets anymore. Yeah. I'm gonna drop the car off at the airport, mm -hmm. 
parking lot peachy, pay two dollars, and then charge the guests for the for the two dollars. You know what I'm <laughs> and then so the beautiful thing is they'll pick the car up from Peachy, go about their way to travel. When they drop the car off at Peachy, they can take the Peachy shuttle back to the airport. Mm. Smooth process. Perfect. Perfect. Smooth process. If I have to pick up the car, or one of my team members have to pick up the car, right? They'll take the train, this Atlantic station, there's a train that goes straight to the airport. So they don't have to worry about driving, getting caught in traffic. Yeah. It was a smooth ride to the airport, pick the car up, and move on from there. So what's, so, uh, and it's so crazy because you've been doing this for. It's only two years. Two years. You're going crazy. And you're just now, you just now put out your course. And yeah, that's a fact. Yo, I, I don't know how many courses you sold, <laughs> like, the, like the first release, yeah. right? Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. Knocking on my door for this. Yeah, because people been asking you for yes. for two years, yes. yo, put me on. Yes, I've been sharing it. Yeah, and I and I for saw free. Right, right, right. But you know, my my boys, they they was like, bro, drop the course, package right. this material, and drop in, in a course form. So I ain't gonna lie, him five hundred Marcus, he he was on my neck, mm. Neo on my neck about dropping a course, yeah. calling me, bro, you gotta drop a course. You know how he talks. Right. You gotta drop the course, or we're gonna do it. I'm like, oh, 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 chill out, chill out, chill out, chill out. What you mean you're gonna drop the tour? All right, all right, I'll, I'll drop it next week. Right, right. So I posted my Instagram, I'm like, yo, everybody, I'm dropping this course. Here's the date. I didn't even build it out yet. I knew setting a date is gonna force me to do it. Because mm. I'm so used to giving out the game for free, enjoying the, the responses, that I didn't feel right charging for it. Yeah. Right? But that, I got a bar with that where if I don't charge, you know how Neo's to be talking yeah. to. If I don't charge, they're not gonna put it into action. They're not yeah. gonna respect it. You already know that how that sure. works too. So I said, cool. I'm gonna charge. You see, I'm gonna test out the price. I charge $12.99. As soon as I put on my Instagram stories, I'm launching the course, I'm doing pre-sales, cash at me. I got cash at Cash at went crazy. Man, look at my cash up right here. Where my phone at? Let me see. Cash up right here. Cash up. It wasn't a link. It wasn't no credit card. And they trust me. Most people are like, nah, that's a cash That's a fact. And I believe because you built a, and you know, for those that know you, know like you are a very credible person, very honest. Like it's not, we know that like money ain't your biggest thing. You feel me? So when you put out something, they're like, yo, I'm here for it. I rock with it. That's what happened, man. I got instant feedback. I, I didn't know that people were willing to pay for this information, but I had to stop devaluing the, devaluing this information. This information, if I had it, I would have saved that $2,800. Yeah. I would have saved all the money I lost in the beginning stages, st- uh, stages to the point where I now just, yo, here's the course information. If you need to know, I have it all documented here. So what's, what's, what's in the course? Talk to me about what's whole in the process. Course. How to buy a vehicle. The best way how to not get finessed by the salespeople. <laughs> Anytime somebody goes to the dealership, you the think you're going to be there in there for an hour? How long did most people be in the dealership for? Forever. Four hours, five hours, six hours. And they beat your brain until, until you feel like you just want to die. Mm. So that's when they get you in the finance room and they have you signing all these. Oh, you need warranty? 
it's just gonna be an extra twenty dollars on your monthly payment. Right. You sign here, <laughs> man. Just invite me. Give me the keys, man. Get on by here. It prevents that in that session. Right. I teach how to uh, figure out what business model you want. Do you want to be an owner in this business, meaning you cash out a car or finance a car under your name, or do you want to be a broker where you're a middleman between the cars? Meaning you don't have to get the car yourself. David, his Range Rover, somebody wants a Range Rover. I'm in the middle of saying, yo, you need a Range Rover? David got it for you. He charges $200 a day. You can pay him directly and run me my $50 so then you know about that booking. Mm. That's a broker. You're the middleman. Yo, let me ask you this. Because a guy sent me a DM. Um, hold on. Um, a, a guy sent me a... a I think I made a post about it, and um, a guy, uh, he sent me a DM about um, his car. On this episode of The Lawyer You Know, we talk about how to go from being a lawyer to a judge. Most people know that for some time you have to be a lawyer before you can actually become a judge. And I bring my dad on to explain the process of how a lawyer becomes a judge. He served on judicial nominating commissions in the past. It's a group who does a lot of work in nominating lawyers and evaluating lawyers that potentially could become judges. We've done some podcasts and videos in the past that we'll link below on Supreme Court justice nominees, on the process of becoming a Supreme Court justice. And there are a ton of different judges and judicial positions that come available. So what I want to start out talking about, Dad, is what is the basic requirements for a lawyer to become a judge or even be considered for a judgeship? Well, there are different requirements for different levels of court. We've got four levels of court in Florida. We have the Supreme Court, we have District Courts of Appeal, we have Circuit Courts, we have County Courts. For the Supreme Court, the District Courts of Appeals, it's 10 years as a lawyer. For county courts and circuit courts, it's five years of a lawyer. Uh, of course, they have to be members of the Florida Bar. And they In have Florida. to live, right, and they have to live within the area that they're applying for a judgeship. So if it's a Pinellas County judge, they have to live in Pinellas County. If it's a Pinellas County position that's open, a right. judgeship that's open, okay. So you have to be a lawyer for at least five years for the lower level state courts, and you have to be a lawyer for at least 10 years for the upper level ones. Correct. Okay, anything else? Or is it just how long you've been a lawyer, basically? Just how long you've been a lawyer. To be eligible. Right. Now, there are, hey, there are exceptions. If you're in one of those small counties in North Florida where you only have 40,000 people in the county, then you can be just a lawyer and be nominated. So you don't have to have any experience. Right. Basically. And in fact, years ago, you didn't even have to be a lawyer to be a judge because those counties were so small, sometimes they didn't have a lawyer that lived in the whole county. Okay. But now we're large enough, and so we can have this requirement. Okay, so but now you have to be a lawyer. Have to be a lawyer. And in what is the cutoff? 40,000 people in your county? Right. So if you have more than 40,000 people in your county, you still have to have that five or 10 year requirement. Correct. Okay. Do you have to be a lower court judge, like a county court judge or circuit court judge, before you can become an appellate court judge or a Supreme Court judge? There is no requirement for it. There's no on-the-job training requirement or anything like that. 
for you to apply to be a judge? Okay, so we've gotten the basic requirements out, the years of experience in being a lawyer. Talk about the process and the different ways that lawyers can become judges because you don't just apply and become a judge, you have to go through different processes. Explain what those are like. There's two ways in Florida to become a judge. One is you're appointed by the governor or two, you're elected by the people. And what we're talking about right now are state court judges. These are strictly state court judges. Okay, so that's important. We're gonna differentiate and talk about federal court later but right now, everything we're talking about is state court judges. So there's two ways, appointed by the governor or voted on by the actual county that you're elected in. Right. Okay. The Supreme Court uh, justices and appellate court justices are always, those are always appointed by the governor. It's the circuit court, which are, we call the trial courts, and the county court. Those are the ones that you can win by election. So the county court and circuit courts that you call the trial court, those are the ones that affect your lives. Those are the ones making the decisions in your cases for the majority of the time. They're the ones in criminal court and civil court that if you file a lawsuit or if you get arrested, your case is going to come before one of those judges that is usually elected by the local county that they're going to represent. So you have a voice you have an opportunity to vote for local judges. And again, shameless plug, but also for extra explanation, we explain the entire voting process for judges and go through the local judges that get voted on in our county on this podcast that we're gonna link in the comments below. Comment if you have any specific questions about how the local elections are handled and what you should look for in judges, how you should vote and if you should vote at all. So make sure you either comment below, go listen to our podcast, you can get more info on that because you actually have a chance to have a voice for the judges that are going to affect your lives. So there are also some situations where judges are appointed to those local positions, whether it's a county court judge or circuit court judge, why does that happen? And talk a little bit about how long these judges are in office. Well, judges are in office, I guess, but on the bench. Well, they're elected for six years, and they have to run again every six years. And is that across the board? Across the board. Circuit, appellate, Supreme Court? Correct. All six years. Okay. All six years. The difference is in the appellate court, the Supreme Court, and the district courts of appeal, those are what's called merit retention votes. So people only vote on those judges to say Hector has access to that account. You're going to get yourself in a mess. We run into it all the time, helping people work through these things. So doing all of that, then you work your debt snowball and work your way back through the inactive accounts and you clear them off by in writing, settle it, in writing, settle it, in writing, settle it, in writing, settle it, and then you're clear. And most of the time, 25 cents on the dollar, 10 cents on the dollar of what they say you owe is going to sound more like about what you originally owed or a little bit less, depending on who you're dealing with, what kind of debt it was, and all that kind of thing. But they'll settle with you if you offer them cash now. I will send you money this instant on this debit card, this prepaid debit card off to the side, or this checking account off to the side, or I'll send you a... Uh, cashier's check overnight 
and pay the FedEx charges, but do not let them in your account. You'll get messed up and messed over. Hey guys, thanks for watching. If you enjoyed this video, click the subscribe button to get the latest content and check out these other great clips from the show. Yeah, that was torture, but it built something in me that I hadn't had before then. Uh, it gave me a drive. It, it, it gave me a, a, a commitment that that I had never discovered in myself as a as a 21 year old. And and let me just say how it was so easy for me to get caught up in the drug selling when I came home in 1998 because that's what the culture was doing. When I came home in 1998, Master P had just dropped an a, 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 a album called Ghetto Dope. Ghetto Dope. Me, 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 crack like this. And it taught you how to cook crack from step one to step ten. So when I came home after being gone from 91 to 98 and I come back and I look into the black community, everybody's selling dope. The dope man image is what the girls want. It's what the preachers like. Everybody like the dope man image. So everybody's selling dope. They rapping about it. So, man, I just get in line with the culture. I get in line with the culture because the culture almost made it like it, it was logical to sell dope over working because the rewards were so great, right? So many black children of our culture followed that mon that bullshit, nigga hustling, selling dope. Me, 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 me crack like this. So we went from that to trapping to now drilling and killing. So the culture reshaped me after all the good that TYC had done. My culture reshaped me in the pimping, in the drug dealing. I went back to robbing, nigga snatching purses, all that shit, nigga, cause that's what the culture was doing. A category E felony in Nevada would include possession of narcotics, a second time charge for peeping, solicitation of a minor for prostitution, or recruitment into a criminal gang. Most category E felonies would result initially in a sentence of probation, but uh, they could also result in a prison sentence of up to four years in the state prison. For record seal on a category E felony, you are eligible to seek a record seal seven years after completion of your sentence. You're watching FJTN, the Federal Judicial Television Network.
live from Washington, D.C., the Federal Judicial Center, and the U.S. Sentencing Commission present Sentencing and Guidelines, Basic Application. your moderator for today's program, Nancy Filson. Hello. As you just heard, I'm Nancy Filsuf, and I'm a Senior Education Specialist for the Federal Judicial Center. Welcome to this afternoon's broadcast on Sentencing and Guidelines Basic Application. Uh, this is actually a third in the series of broadcasts on sentencing and guidelines that has been presented by the Federal Judicial Center in partnership with the United States Sentencing Commission. Let me tell you a little bit about this broadcast. We're going to be um, broadcasting for approximately two hours, and at that midpoint, we'll probably have a five-minute break. Now, let me tell you more about the broadcast. What, we've, what we're going to do is a major portion of the broadcast, we are going to be showing a videotape of a training program that the United States Sentencing Commission uh, presented in Clearwater, Florida, not too long ago on basic applications. So what we have done is we have divided this tape into four segments. And in between the segments, we have experts from the Sentencing Commission that we will introduce to you in a few minutes. And they will provide commentary on the segments and also they will answer your questions that you will be faxing in um, during the pro program broadcast. I'll give you the fax number in just a few minutes. Also, I want to show you that we have some information that you can find about the broadcast on the Federal Judicial Center DCN website. And there's a lot of very good information about the Sentencing Commission in here. So I really urge you to get this information if you haven't already done so. Also in this packet, you will notice that we have provided for your convenience a fax form that you can use when you are faxing in your questions to us. Now before I forget, let me give you the fax number. It's 1-800-488-0397. Also, this program has been approved for Continuing Legal Education Credit, or CLE. And you can find out how to apply for this credit also by going to the Federal Judicial Center DCN website. I believe I'm finished with my announcements. What I'd like to do is to introduce to you my colleagues from the Sentencing Commission. First of all, we have Rusty Burrows, who is the principal advisor in the commission. And we also have Rachel Pierce, who is an education and sentencing practice specialist. And both are from the Office of the Education and Sentencing Practice. Well, Rusty and um, Rachel, welcome to the program. I'm so glad you're here today. Thank you so much, Nancy. And I know that you do have some comments that you want to provide to us before we start the first segment. So, Rachel, why don't you start first? Thank you, Nancy. Good afternoon. 
On behalf of the Sentencing Commission, I'd like to welcome you to Sentencing and Guidelines Basic Application. Today on the pre-recorded videotape, you will be seeing instruction from Andy Purdy in the Office of General Counsel, Frank Larry in the Office of Education and Sentencing Practice, and Rusty Burris. As, as Nancy mentioned earlier, this videotape was originally taped at the 8th Annual National Seminar on Sentencing Guidelines, which occurred in Clearwater, Florida in 1999. Rusty, would you like to tell us a little bit more about how the broadcast is going to go today? be glad to. Uh, as you know from the title of our program today, the focus is on basic guidelines application. And we're going to do that by breaking it down into four segments. In the first segment, we're going to look at uh, some of the general application principles. We'll look at the Chapter 2 guidelines for offense, uh, offenses. We'll also look at the Chapter 3 adjustments. In our second segment, we'll look at criminal history determinations and also how to use the sentencing table in coming up with an appropriate guideline range. In the third segment, we'll look at relevant conduct. And then in the fourth segment, we'll look at multiple counts with just a brief uh, look at departures. Now, after segments one and three, uh, Rachel, you and I will be coming back to just make a few comments. Uh, after segments two and four, uh, we'll be coming back to take the uh, questions that the uh, viewers will be asking us. Uh, and in terms of the be very stigmatizing. Boy is definitely ha happy with this decision because he took the social media and made a statement immediately when this happened or, you know, as soon as it, it made news. Now, in his post on social media, Rack Boy had this to say, man, and it just seemed like, man, he was really, really excited about the judgment, but this is what he said verbatim. He said, this has been a very lengthy and tedious process. I'm grateful for the outcome, and I'm thankful it's all behind me. I'm excited to get back into the studio and continue creating music for my fans. I wish the best for all parties on current and future endeavors. It's Rack Boys, SZN, Are You Dumb? And then I don't know what emoji that is, but it looks like a circle. And then hashtag Rack Boys, hashtag Jersey. So, man... It looks like, man, things are looking up for Rack Boy. And he was even posted, he even reposted some of the people who took the social media to make memes about the situation like this. He reposted this, man, and somebody, they posted the, the they took his head and put it on Chris Tucker's face from the uh, Rush Hour movie. And it basically says this, it said, Rack Boy Cam all summer after winning that $1.7 million. Laughing emojis. Nothing but, you know what, you know what, you know what, for him now, man. And I had to block out those other things because, you know, they're not good for this platform. Now, Rack Boy thought it was funny, obviously, because he posted this. He said, chill, y'all cooking on the internet. And it was more memes that people were posting, but, man, it goes to show that, you know, he was taking this real well. Of course, because he won, but, man, it seems like PMB rocking them might be punching this punching the air right now, man. They thinking about that money that they just lost. Now, in the news article, it doesn't say what type of, you know, judgment it was. It doesn't say where 
were they sued in civil court? I'm sure it was, man, because, I mean, I don't know, man. When it comes to copyrights, I'm not really sure. But it just seems like, man, for them, for all the news publications and, you know, hip-hop sites to pick this up, it must have been a clear-cut deal, and this is official, man. So it looks like Rack Boy got a little bit of change to invest into his music career, and PMB rocking them, they're going to lose on the front end and a little bit of the publishing and all that on the back end. But I don't think this is going to hurt their career in any type of way, man. I mean, Wyatt and Lucci, his hands are full right now. He's got his thing that he's dealing with. And PMB Rock is still just making sure that he's cranking out hits. I know he just did a joint pretty much with everybody from OTF, including a song with uh, King Von that that he did before that they did together before he passed away so it seems like he's back in that mode to be working on music so all in all maybe this is a win for everybody i don't know i'm just trying to keep it positive i guess but what do you guys think man do you think that taking this hit to your pocket for yfn lucci and pnb rock specifically is one of the worst things that can happen in the music business i'll tell you this man after looking at a whole bunch of stories this is a common occurrence. This happens all the time. People pay money to get things right. The other person gets a little piece of the song. Things move on. So, I mean, this might not be the worst thing in the world, but is this just another negative notch on YFN Lucci's belt with everything that he's got going on right now? Now, with that, this being your boy, Big Man, please hit that like button. Please hit that subscribe button. And make sure you hit that notification bell so that way you get a notification every time I drop this hot content and we out of here. Peace. It's the Apprendi versus New Jersey decision by the U.S. Supreme Court last year. Uh, there the U.S. Supreme Court talked about what is required in order to have an enhanced maximum statutory penalty. Because our video presentation today, however, is focusing on basic guidelines application, we will not be getting into the determination of statutory penalties or looking at recent case law developments. But for those of you that are interested in Apprendi, and I'm sure that virtually everyone is, uh, the FJTN did an excellent broadcast just last month that looked at Apprendi. Uh, they did a great job. It had an expert panel that was involved in that uh, to include one of our sentencing commissioners, Judge Joe Kendall from the Northern District of Texas. Uh, so we certainly commend you uh, to, to watching that video. We, we think it's, it's, it's an excellent one. Uh, it will be rebroadcast on a couple of occasions upcoming uh, on the FJTN network. Uh, the first will be on uh, February the 14th. Uh, I assume that that's probably like some kind of FJTN Valentine's Day special. <laughs> and then it'll be shown again on March the 14th. Uh, on each of those dates, it'll be shown at both uh, noon and then again at 1 o'clock. Thank you, Rusty. We're going to move on to our final segment in just a moment. But before we do that, Rusty, um, I just wanted to ask you, what do you think is one of the most important principles to remember when we're applying relevant conduct? Well, I think the main thing, and you probably gathered it from the video presentation, uh, was that uh, relevant conduct has to be done on an individualized determination. 
for each and every defendant that is uh, being sentenced and in the, in the for which the guidelines are being applied, you have to go through this analysis for each and every one. Uh, and that's true even if you have multiple defendants convicted of just the same count of conviction because that relevant conduct may be different for each of those defendants. And you don't know that until you have gone through that analysis and that application. Uh, now, I know that sometimes, uh, if you've done it long enough, uh, it starts seeming maybe a little bit intuitive as, as to the analysis. Uh, but I think uh, always uh, a, a person applying the guidelines would do well to go back to the analysis and be able to articulate where in the analysis they found the role of a conduct to apply or not to apply. Uh, because if an issue is challenged, you have to be able to go back and to justify why you did or did not include something as part of your relevant conduct. Absolutely, very good point. Okay, it's time to move on to our fourth and final segment of the videotape. It's going to focus on multiple count application and we're also going to give you a brief discussion of departures. Remember, if you have any questions, please fax them into us now. Once again, our fax number is 1-800-488-0397. Let's go back to the videotape. Of course, as you're applying guidelines, you've got to use the sentencing table, and you've got to come down the table to a certain point and across the table to a certain point to come up with your guideline range. And with multiple counts, of course, one of the practical aspects of it is, hey, well, if I got multiple counts, what point do I use going down the table? If I got multiple counts, do I have multiple points? You know, how do I, I got to have one place that I come down so I can go across from that place to, uh, to find this one range. And the rationale for the multiple count rules one is to determine the single offense level. By using these rules, you will be able to find that one point coming down the table that connects with that one point going across the table that gives you this one guideline range for your multiple counts of conviction. The commission in the multiple count rules is trying to keep from double counting, from punishing a defendant twice the conduct really has already been punished under one of the counts of conviction. We don't want to double punish. Uh, also, to provide incremental punishment. If someone, say, comes into court convicted of multiple offenses, uh, oftentimes people will get multiple punishments for multiple offenses, but typically it is, a, it is an equal amounts of, of punishment. A guy convicted of five robberies probably doesn't get the, the length of time under nine guidelines sentencing, uh, five times the time that the guy who committed the one robbery. Rather, it's more of an incremental increase, and our guidelines work to give incremental increases. Yeah, you'll get more time for five robberies than for one, but you're not going to get five times the amount. You're going to get a little bit more for each of the additional, what we call, harms. And to limit prosecutorial impact. If the guidelines said, oh, every time you get a count of conviction, we're going to add so much more offense levels or so much more time or whatever, Prosecutors say, well, in this case, you know, I can charge 20 counts of embezzlement. Uh, in this other case, I'll just charge one count of embezzlement. And boy, we came out with a whole lot different sentence here just based on purely the way I decided to charge this conduct. 
and the Commission has tried to limit that somewhat in these multiple count rules. Now, the Commission said, we know that when you have multiple counts of conviction, you have multiple violations of law. It's, I mean, it's, it's one and the same. You violated the law multiple times, so there are multiple counts of conviction. But you don't always have... Hey, what's going on? My name is Nate, lawyer slash YouTuber. And today I want to talk about Cardi B again. And we're going to actually just look up her case and look at what she's charged with and see how much time she can actually get. Because a lot of the Cardi B fans, I love you guys, thank you guys for watching, thanks for making comments, have been hammering me in the comments section saying that everything I'm showing you guys is fake news. So, it even got to one point where one fan was like, this is all fake, there's nothing about it. Then I actually said, here's the name, here's the link, go look it up. And they refused to look it up. So, just so we can all be on the same page. And because I've been challenged, it's time to provide that receipt. Let's go into the receipts. For those of you who don't know who Cardi B is and don't know who the people I'm talking about, check out this news clip. It'll get you caught up in a quick hot minute. Rapper Cardi B has been indicted on charges stemming from a melee at a Queen strip club. In April, Cardi B rejected a plea deal that would have included no jail time if she pleaded guilty to third degree assault. Cardi B is accused of throwing items inside Angel's strip club in Flushing last August, injuring two bartenders, the 26-year-old due back in court next Tuesday. So our first stop is to the comments section. This is love me or let me leave. Uh-oh. And they edited. Now, this person says Cardi B is not facing 10 years. No way you're an attorney. Oh no, so then I write back, look it up yourself, two felonies, see Cardi B's case, right? Defendant's name, here's the link, go check it out. Waterfalls come, I see nothing, I can't do anything, it's just like, oh my god. Stop reporting false info, can't see anything on the state's website? I put the link works for everyone else, so then we have some back and forth with other people, now she's saying that she sees it, or he or she, or whatever's happening. So, I started getting a couple of these comments. I started getting comments saying that, you know, there's no way she's getting any time, and I'm just missing it. I'm, it's wrong, 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 wrong. So I'm like, alright, let's do this. Let's just look it up ourselves, and I'll show you exactly where I'm getting my numbers from. First, so you guys can see, we are going to e-courts. Now, if you're in New York and you're arrested, you can look up the case here. You can look up Harvey Weinstein. You can look up anybody's case here on e-courts, and you go to this place called Web Crimes. Now, I've already pulled it up. Now, I've used Cardi B's name, um, which is her 
government name. And you can pull up the case right here, Queen Supreme Court. Now, this is a court that handles felonies, so there it is. And now we look at her arrest information. So this is a summary of her case. Defendant, her birth year, tells you, you know, what, what day she was arrested, what date the incident was, you know, all this great stuff. So now we can see what's going on. We can see her attorney, for instance, and her next appearance date, which is March 19th, 2020. So now on this side right here, you see where it says appearances. So now we can actually see when she's been in the court and what happened. So she's been to court all these times, all these times, you know, in front of this judge, that judge, the court reporter. Um, yeah, she's always been in front of the same judge. Now it's on for trial. So she's on for trial. So she was arraigned. I think she was arraigned on a misdemeanor. That she was arraigned on felony. So you, you can see it's all here. And her next trial date. Her trial date is 3-19-2020. So that is her next date. Calendared for next week. Okay. So this is the part... This is the part where I think people are getting confused on, so let's just go into it. It all it is the charges. Here are the charges. Now, the first one, as you can see here, is a violation. This is harassment in the second degree. That's like a parking ticket. It's nothing. You know, nobody serves any jail in time for violations here in New York. It's a laugher, right? So the first two counts of violations. Now. Throw them away. They're really worth nothing. Again, violations are like parking tickets. Class A misdemeanor is something interesting. Because a Class A misdemeanor, that means that you could spend up to 364 days in jail. You can't spend a year in jail because if you spend a year, it has to be a felony. And you have to be indicted for that. So, misdemeanors, you can spend up to a year in jail. Cardi's being charged with the misdemeanor, a misdemeanor of conspiracy. So, she could spend up to a year in jail, 364 days. Now, is she going to get that for any of these charges? Probably not. It all depends on her criminal history. It's a lot of factors that go into sentencing. But usually I tell you the you for that. No, I got the relationship. I'm going to charge the furniture store. Hey, listen, markup is crazy on this. you probably selling... For ten thousand, you're giving them twenty five hundred dollars worth of furniture, maybe four. Mm. I need a seven hundred and fifty dollar referral fee for every client I send in here. But when I go in, you go in and introduce yourself as listen, make up an I'm an apartment specialist. <laughs> right? I specialize in, in I'm an occupancy specialist, right? I specialize in getting all the apartments in the area fully occupied or uh, occupancy level of ninety five plus percent. Uh, they, they're going to be confused. I don't know what that is, but he get people apartments. <laughs> I got a list of people <laughs> that need furniture. He's an interior decorator too, y'all. Yeah, right? Yeah, I do interior <laughs> decorating. So now I get paid now only am I helping you get the apartment. I'm getting paid from getting you the apartment from the leasing agent. And I'm over here with the furniture guy and get a, a kick on the back end because I'm going to tell you, hey, listen, your credit is together. You can go over here and get 10000 in furniture. Now your condo is furnished. 
And now you that, just got paid four times. <laughs> now you get paid four times. That's penthouse poppy. That's a business for anybody that's listening. <laughs> sure. It don't matter what your background is. It don't matter. And it all started from you just suppressing one thing so somebody could be approved. Literally, that's that's realistically. I I used to run that company, and that's where it started from. That's literally how that business started. You know Derek Grace? Yeah, I don't know him personally, but online, see him. Uh, that's that's our guy. Good friend of ours, EY alumni. TG. What's up, y'all? It's the fourth quarter. It's a new month. And what better way to start it than to come and join us at EYL University? Yes, the fourth quarter is where star players make a name for themselves. So come and join the number one roster. EYL University is the biggest platform for business in the universe. We have over 70 past classes, weekly classes. We have a private investment group on Facebook, which gives you access to our movie club, our book club. We also have bi-weekly real estate calls with MG, the mortgage guy, and monthly financial advising calls with none other than yours truly. <laughs> so head over to EYLUniversity.com right now and enter promo code EYL for 40% off of our annual membership. That's right. Don't wait. Don't hesitate. Head over. We'll see you on the other side. Let's do it. He posted, I remember he posted a post of yours Mm -hmm. and uh, he was like, I don't know, bro, but he dangerous. (laughs) (laughs) Yo, listen, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you, right? I watch bro post and, and, and I, and I look and I be like, what he, we, we, we do different stuff, right? But I say, yo, he, he give it up. Like he not, he not capping on nothing. He says like, even from, you know, I look. I don't care. I'm wearing diamonds. The car right. chandelier. <laughs> yeah. chandelier. Chandelier alert. But you know, nah. But you know, even with the gold game, man, like bro, vicious. Nah, it's much respect. Bro. Nah, nah. When you said that, that was real though. I, he actually got my attention with that. I'm like, nah, this dude is dangerous, man. Like, he's dangerous. Yeah. Like, you know what I'm Thanks. saying? Like, it's a lot of you. Your information is the most important thing in the world. Like, because mm-hmm. it's like there's so much stuff that you can just change your whole. Your whole life, your whole your whole generation, with just a few vital pieces of information. Yeah, that's all it takes, and there's so many of us out here leading the way, giving it up to us, um, and giving the information up to really see how people could change their life. Like I just laid out, like we're on a public podcast, and I just gave out a whole business plan off of leveraging one piece of information. Before that, I gave a blueprint. I hope they take notes. Like, listen, I'm giving you. I gave the blueprint. This is how you clean your credit. Mm-hmm. Opt yeah. out. Use a 609 letter. Get familiar with companies like CFPB. It's the companies that regulate the credit bureaus. These are things that we need to know, information that we need. And I'm looking now and I go, we start looking and so many lives is changing off of information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> let me ask you, let me ask you yeah. another question. Um, you had an interesting thing where you said that um, turn a liability into an asset. And that really struck my attention because it's like you said, we've been programmed so long to think that everything is a uh, liability on a certain level like that is not an asset, traditional assets like cars, for instance. Right. Mm-hmm. It's like no matter like 
we we did a video about how to like put your car in your business name and take the deduction and all that. And a lot of people was like, that's dope. I didn't know any. But then there was always some skeptics like, well, it's still a liability. You're still wasting money on it. Yeah. Well, you broke down something and that was kind of crazy. It got my attention to how you can actually turn, make money with the car, like running ads and Toro. <clears throat> can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So when it comes to that, one of the things is that, look, I, and it's funny and it, it probably rubbed people the wrong way. Cars are, are, are liabilities, right? That's a, 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 a 19th century mindset, right? Take of title 18 you know i showed you that guideline range if the judge says no nah, i don't like that guideline range i'm going to do an upward departure and if that's the case okay and there's statutory room to do that upward departure the defendant has the automatic automatic right to appeal if there's a downward departure from that guideline range same thing with the government. The government has, the U.S. attorney has the uh, right to appeal that uh, sentence automatically. Uh, of course, you can always appeal an incorrect application of the guidelines. It was just basically wrong from the beginning, and uh, uh, either party can uh, make that uh, appeal. Uh, where there's no guideline and the sentence is plainly unreasonable, can be a basis for an appeal as well. Well, we have about at least 80% or so of the, of the federal criminal violations covered by the guidelines. There's a few out there that are not. You probably won't see many of those. But the plainly unreasonable would be the standard for appeal in that situation. And of course, if it was a an out-and-out illegal sentence, which I dare say you very rarely see, but uh, that's another right to uh, an appeal. We have statistics uh, from 1997, in case you're curious about what actually the courts are doing in terms of uh, sentencing. If you look at uh, 97, this is based on four, uh, roughly 46,000 cases. Almost 68% of the time, uh, judges are sentencing within the guideline range. Above the guideline range, you know, these departures upward from the guideline range, 97.8%. And below the guideline range, these downward departures in 97 at 12.1%. 1998, there's an increase to 13.6%. And below the guideline range for substantial assistance is 5K1.1, which we're gonna talk a little bit about later. Uh, for substantial assistance, uh, 97 number, 19.2%. The 98 number, 19.3%. So roughly the same. And that's been holding pretty steady, the 5K1.1 rate over the past few years um, and the 98 cases based on more cases in 98 uh, almost 48,000 cases in 98 
you know, with, with single count application, and we're going to start off with single counts. Later we'll talk about multiple counts, but if you don't understand single count application, you will not understand multiple count application. One thing to keep in mind uh, for, for you folks that haven't had experience with this is that the statute always trumps the guidelines. So if you go through this process going down the table, across the table, and you come up with some range, and that range says 12 to 14 years, but the defendant's convicted of a count with a maximum statutory penalty of 10 years, the statute's going to trump the guidelines. This guy cannot get any more than 10 years. That will be the sentence. Or if you calculate a guideline range that says give the guy two to three years, but the individual's convicted of an offense with a mandatory minimum of five years, that defendant will get the mandatory minimum of five years. Again, the statute will trump the guidelines. So keep that in mind because uh, it can be quite significant as to the count that has been pled to, for instance, in a single count application, because you may come in having the statute trump what the guidelines have called for. In Chapter 2, as you're working your way down the table, you develop a base offense level, which is a starting point for coming down the table from the Chapter 2 guideline. You have specific offense characteristics uh, that talk about certain aspects of this particular offense, and if those characteristics are applicable, they will send you further down, sometimes back up the table. And you have in some of the Chapter 2 guidelines uh, what are called cross-references that basically say, okay, you've applied this Chapter 2 guideline and you came up with a number here, but the cross-reference may say, well, go over to another Chapter 2 guideline, apply that, and see what that number is. And sometimes you're directed to use that other guideline if the number is higher, or you're directed to use that other guideline under certain circumstances instead of the one with which you had begun. Having completed the Chapter 2 calculations coming down the table, then you move to what we refer to sort of as generic guidelines in Chapter 3. Uh, there are adjustments that further affect this offense level, sending you further down or back up the table. These include victim-related adjustments, role in the offense adjustments, obstruction adjustments, now, we're looking at single count applications, so at this point we're not concerned with multiple counts, but in the sequence of guideline application, next would be the consideration of multiple counts of conviction, if you did have multiple counts. And then the final Chapter 3 adjustment is acceptance of responsibility. Of course, the question is, which Chapter 2 guideline do you begin with? Uh, you've got a whole Having been a prosecutor for five years and a criminal defense attorney for more than 10 years, all the time I see cases where people find themselves suffering immigration consequences for a criminal conviction that they were not expecting. Situations where they go to court and their attorney says, hey, I got you a great deal, you're going to get time served, you're going to get out today, no jail time, just you sign these plea documents, it's, it's a terrific deal. And, and, and they go through with it, they plead guilty, they plead no contest, and then a year later, sometimes five years later, sometimes ten years later, they find themselves in removal proceedings 
about to be deported from the United States. Or they find that they leave the United States and they're not able to re-enter, or they're not able to naturalize and become a citizen of the U.S. So to the extent that you are not a citizen of the United States and you've been charged with a crime, you want to get an attorney who understands not only criminal law, but immigration law as well, and can resolve the case in a way that not only gets you a good result in court, but that is not going to trigger immigration consequences. And go move their stuff, bring it back to you. They make them pay a deposit. They run it real nice. You can leave it at Home Depot. I leave mine's at Home Depot in a parking lot. Yo, you know what? You know, some people, they'll spend, you know, $100,000, $150,000 on an investment property that's not going to give you three fifty dollars a week. No, it's not. But you're going to buy a two, dollars $3,000 car. Turn them cars into real estate, baby. Better than real estate. And I was telling, I was like, I ain't going to lie. Do you ever get an economy car and sit on it and nobody wants it? Haven't. I mean, I, I like, like a lot of my mentees used to ask me, like, what's the best car to get? I'd be like, all of them going to go. You just want to do the, when it comes to economies, you want to do the ones that never really break down. Like? Like Toyotas. Come on, when you seen a Toyota broke down on the side yeah. of the street? Come on, bro. Them things last forever. Especially a Prius. And they good on gas. You fill it up with $20, that thing gets you all week. You know what I mean? So I just look for Toyota Priuses. Man, it's just super Hyundai convenient, Sonatas. man. Because it's, I just put it on my insurance. Go ahead and drive it. Something happens. You don't, you don't care. I you don't can care, care less. You know what I mean? And then you can. I still put full coverage on all of mine just to take a little baby check that I'm going to get. Mm. But it don't matter to me because I already know. I know. Like, if it, if in the rare occasion that it before I make my money back, it crashes or something like that, which it doesn't. But if it were to, it's not a big deal. I only spent 2000 Like, for. I'm not saying just you have 2000 for I'm talking about I use my finance cars yeah. to get me up to where I was making enough money to go and buy cars cash. And then I dud it, I dud it over and over and over to where I got so many economy cars, they gonna keep going and going and going. Now, when they happen to do break down or something like that, I get them fixed and then I keep them going. And if I if they done for, I already made my money back times tw- 10 already. Yeah. And it's not a big deal to me. So I just, you know, sell it to the scrap car, get money off from the scrap people. Tell it to them, then go get another one. Like, it's not even a big deal because there's so many of those cars. Y'all got to understand that they make a, a, a new model of every car every single year. Y'all know how many cars out here? Y'all know how many people go get something on uh, Labor Day, on a Labor Day sales, and they can't handle it no more? They want to give it away? Mm-hmm. Let me give y'all a couple games. Let me give y'all a couple games before we get out for this thing. So, you're talking joint ventures. You got people that can't handle their car notes no more. You know a way to make money with it. You take over that payment you get the money with it. Or you can offer your people who don't know how to make money for themselves, give them money every month to use their credit, get a finance car, so you're helping them in two ways. You're getting yourself money and you're helping your people who don't know how to make money and giving them solid money. That's a joint venture. Learn how to solve problems. If you start learn how to solve problems in this game, you will never be broke because it's so many people that need cars for stuff, different reasons. You know what I mean? You'll, you'll be getting slingshots. You'll be like, damn, why would I need a slingshot? Because you can drive it for yourself and then you can make money on it hourly. Mm. What, don't run out a, a slingshot for the day. Run it out by the hour. 100 an hour going to make you a killing. Get three of them. They're going to get them three at the same time, I promise you. It's so many plays. It's like get you trucks, use fetch truck. You know how many people need trucks for moving? 
if you that guy who just give it to him, I don't care if you beat it up a little bit. Now you're damn by this truck. Move your stuff. These dudes gonna rent them every damn day. <laughs> Y'all know how good these trucks. I'll be like, yo, I'll be so surprised. I'll be like, I was like, yeah, just you can you can ding it up a little bit. I'm not gonna make you pay if you ding up the back or uh, they'd be like, bro, I'm taking this to work every day. Y'all know how much money I make off these trucks, man. Come on, man, don't stop. Don't get me started. So solve problems, baby. And then you'll you'll go a long way. Help your people, do your joint venture method, mm-hmm. broker deals with other people who who are in the rental car space. Maybe they might not be as good as you in marketing. Maybe they might not have the platform that the Dave Sham has. He could say, look, I got my rental cars going out for a hundred a day. Who need that? You feel what I'm saying? Or maybe they can't, they don't have that influence. So if you do have it, you can help them out, give them a minimum daily payment that they'll make, a minimum that they'll make every day when a car goes out, and then charge your fee on top. You know you got that clout. Go ahead and use it. Solve mm-hmm. these problems. If they, you know you're the go-to guy, be that go-to guy. Mm-hmm. Be able to just do good business, though. Have integrity and be consistent. If you be consistent in any business, they'll never forget you. So every time they come in town, they're going to send all their cousins to you. They're going to send their sales to you, and they're going to make sure – that they rent with you because you were consistent and you do good business. If you do that, I, that's why I never worry about having customers because they come into they dying for me. They hit my Google page, they hit my 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 Instagram, mm. they hit my business Instagram, they hit in, uh, my Toro, <laughs> my hire car. So I got them coming from all streams. You know what I'm saying? So that's the thing. And clearly, word of mouth is passing around as well because I do good business. And I think of myself as a friendly guy and I, somewhere where somebody will want to come and feel comfortable getting the car. They know I'm not going to trick them and charge them extra fees. I'm only going to charge you for what you do. I'm not going to charge you for what I want. I'm not going to say, oh, I've been had this scratch. Let me get them. No, no. Right. We're going to be detailed on every time and I'm going to make sure everybody's happy. That's what I want. That's all I care. Everybody needs to be happy. I love it. Bitch, I appreciate you, my brother. Yep. Um, this was just a, a wealth of knowledge. Mm-hmm. I'm really probably gonna go get an I eight tomorrow. It's gonna be so dope. We're gonna pull up back to back. Once you do that, I'm like, look, how much is the rap? Because you gotta rap it. Oh right? yeah, yeah. So get a good rap guy. And let me tell you another trick on the raps. Go to these. If you got, or if you are like a person, it's the Apprendi versus New Jersey decision by the U.S. Supreme Court last year. Uh, there, the U.S. Supreme Court talked about what is required in order to have an enhanced maximum statutory penalty. Because our video presentation today, however, is focusing on basic guidelines application, we will not be getting into the determination of statutory penalties or looking at recent case law developments. But for those of you that are interested in Apprendi, and I'm sure that virtually everyone is, Uh, The FJTN did an excellent broadcast just last month that looked at Apprendi. Uh, They did a great job. It had an expert panel that was involved in that uh, to include one of our sentencing commissioners, Judge Joe Kendall from the Northern District of Texas. Uh, So we certainly commend you uh, to to watching that video. We we think it's it's an excellent one. It will be rebroadcast on a couple of occasions upcoming uh, on the FJTN network. Uh, The first will be on uh, February the 14th. Uh, I assume that that's probably like some kind of FJTN Valentine's Day special. And then it'll be shown again on March the 14th. 
uh, on each of those dates, it'll be shown at both uh, noon and then again at one o'clock. Thank you, Rusty. We're going to move on to our final segment in just a moment, but before we do that, Rusty, um, I just wanted to ask you, what do you think is one of the most important principles to remember when we're applying relevant conduct? Well, I think the main thing, and, and you probably gathered it from the uh, video presentation, uh, was that uh, relevant conduct it has to be done on an individualized determination uh, for each and every defendant that is uh, being sentenced and in the, in the for which the guidelines are being applied. You have to go through this analysis for each and every one. Uh, and that's true even if you have multiple defendants convicted of just the same count of conviction because that relevant conduct may be different for each of those defendants. And you don't know that until you have gone through that analysis and that application. Uh, now, I know that sometimes, uh, if you've done it long enough, uh, it starts seeming maybe a little bit intuitive as, as to the analysis. Uh, but I think uh, always uh, a, a person applying the guidelines would do well to go back to the analysis and be able to articulate where in the analysis they found the role of a conduct to apply or not to apply. Uh, because if an issue is challenged, you have to be able to go back and to justify why you did or did not include something as part of your relevant conduct. Absolutely, very good point. Okay, it's time to move on to our fourth and final segment of the videotape. It's going to focus on multiple count application and we're also going to give you a brief discussion of departures. Remember, if you have any questions, please fax them into us now. Once again, our fax number is 1-800-488-0397. Let's go back to the videotape. Of course, as you're applying guidelines, you've got to use the sentencing table, and you've got to come down the table to a certain point and across the table to a certain point to come up with your guideline range. And with multiple counts, of course, one of the practical aspects of it is hey, well, if I got multiple counts, what point do I use going down the table? If I got multiple counts, do I have multiple points? You know, how do I, I got to have one place that I come down so I can go across from that place to, uh, to find this one range. And the rationale for the multiple count rules, one is to determine the single offense level. By using these rules, you will be able to find that one point coming down the table that connects with that one point going across the table that gives you this one guideline range for your multiple counts of conviction. The commission in the multiple count rules is trying to keep from double counting, from punishing a defendant twice through conduct really has already been punished under one of the counts of conviction. We don't want to double punish. Uh, also, to provide incremental punishment. If someone, say, comes into court convicted of multiple offenses, uh, oftentimes people will get multiple punishments for multiple offenses, but typically it is, a, it is an equal amounts of, of punishment. A guy convicted of five robberies probably doesn't get the, the length of time under nine guidelines sentencing, uh, five times the time that the guy who committed the one robbery. 
Rather, it's more of an incremental increase. And our guidelines work to give incremental increases. Yeah, you'll get more time for five robberies than for one, but you're not going to get five times the amount. You're going to get a little bit more for each of the additional what we call harms. And to limit prosecutorial impact. If the guidelines said, oh, every time you get a count of conviction, we're going to add so much more offense levels or so much more time or whatever, prosecutors say, well, in this case, you know, I can charge 20 counts of embezzlement. Uh, in this other case, I'll just charge one count of embezzlement. And boy, we came out with a whole lot different sentence here just based on purely the way I decided to charge this conduct. And the commission has tried to limit that somewhat in these multiple count rules. Now, as the commission said, we know that when you have multiple counts of conviction, you have multiple violations of law. It's, I mean, it's, it's one and the same. You violated the law multiple times, so there are multiple counts of conviction. But you don't always have... This kid's amazing. He's 18, got a real estate license. I say, yo, by the time I'm 30, I'll be retired. I'm out of here. What? $14,000 check? $12,000 check? I had a 2006 Dodge Charger in 2006. Mm. I went and got an Escalade. Yeah. Oh, life is great. 12 months later. Oh. <laughs> One day you wake up. <laughs> the world is different. <laughs> People are coming in, right? I'm going to tell the truth, right? People are coming in now. And my broker goes, we're going to have to do loan modifications, right? He starts crushing it with the loan mods now. He's crushing it too but I'm getting chewed out because I'm seeing people lose their homes that I just sold homes mm. it's like mortgage was this it's now this what do we do oh loan modification meaning you sell me a home and then your company changes my loan no they were doing like basically taking it to banks to rearrange people's loans to do like kind of refis and depending on what part you were at mm. to get you out of that adjustable rate right getting people out of it but you charging people to get them out of the bad loan you put them in mm. yikes i moved to atlanta why'd you move to atlanta I wasn't making no money. Right. It was over. It was. And did you see Atlanta as an opportunity to sell more real estate, or it's just a different opportunity? It was a different opportunity. I met some people that was doing um, network marketing, your travel biz, YTB. Okay. That was my first ever. Did you get a bag in YTB? Absolutely not. Really? Absolutely not. You know, you remember uh, Spencer Iverson? Something Spencer was killing it. Uh, I was under a guy named Keith. Mm. out of making um, no I didn't um, <laughs> but I got in, I got inspired right? right I remember going to St. Louis and I seen these regular people who weren't celebrities standing on a stage that packed out the whole St. Louis arena mm. and I told my mom I'm gonna do that I'm gonna be able to pack an arena out to respect me when I come out and do something. Right. So that's been my goal. I go. I remember seeing that. I didn't know that. As I fast forward now, and I go, only way you'll be able to do that is if you can positively impact people's lives.
So you have to get into a position to where you can impact as many people as possible. So when I look at it now and I look at my business model, my whole goal is if you want to be successful, you'll only be as successful as the amount of people you help become successful. I have to make massive impact positively on people's lives. The more amount of people I can positively affect, the more successful I'll be. And the closer to going, look at, I can now put and go, look at how many people I've been able to positively impact. For sure, for sure. That's now my goal, and it's been my goal for the last few years, is how do I grow my impact? I started out with financial literacy and um, credit coaching and things like that because I wanted to help people. Mm. I've helped fathers get funded to get their daughters heart surgery. Mm. That kind of impact. People who um, kids are getting taken and put into child protective services and we're helping them purchase homes or helping them get into adequate living situations, not understanding that they can finance furniture to have their home properly furnished and having everything there. That kind of impact. Mm -hmm. Then I go, I can only do so much. This is getting beyond me. I have more clients then I can have staff. Right. Okay. So we 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 fast forward. So you're a YTB not making no money. But yeah. how do you get into helping people with their credit? Get, I started working. I uh, went through transitions, different com- different businesses. Atlanta. I got introduced to Atlanta. You know, anybody get introduced to Atlanta, you get introduced to get outside yeah. and go. Mm-hmm. So. I got outside and I went. I'm on Craigslist. I'm doing cell phone repair. I go into. So you got in the cell phone repair after the YGB fiasco. Yeah, yeah, yeah. fiasco with that, right? So I remember even with YGB, I was like Marietta uh, Mall. I mean the flea market in Marietta. Mm -hmm. I went in there and bought Air Force Ones, bought a caseload from China. And I would drive around and deliver those. Mm, right. I was in that game. Right. So, you know, we yeah, doing yeah. the doing that. So I did that. Ended up into the cell phones. I started figuring that out. I go through the cell phone um, spin for about a year and a half, two years. That did really well when eBay was going on, buying screens from China, fixing them, right? Ended up opening the Boost Mobile. That crashed on us. I lost everything. Mm. I literally was, I moved in with my sister. Lost everything. Not only did I. Navigating the legal waters can be challenging and frightening at times. Being accused of a crime, either a business or a personal matter, finding the right attorney, while it doesn't cost anything to make that call, could cost everything in terms of outcome. When I came to Woolwich Law Firm, I found a team of professionals, assertive, aggressive, focused not only on the outcome, but also on the, the client. There were many nights, late nights, where I, I would pick up the phone and call members of the team, and I always got a response. And that's important. Finding a lawyer who just represents the outcomes and doesn't represent the clients can be terrifying. Really committed to not only winning the case, but also committed to making the experience one that puts the client in the best frame of light. What made this 
situation more uh, scary for me is the fact that being a high publicity at times, you people can say anything they want about you and it's your job as the person to hire the right law firm to protect your interest, your reputation and your livelihood. And that's what happened to me. Accused of something that I absolutely did not do, I sought the best representation, not taking a chance on the outcomes, not taking a chance on my livelihood. Wolders Law Firm, again, committed to the outcomes, committed to the client. You won't be sorry. What you've got to do, folks, when it comes to this FICO score stuff, and people run around mouthing about that stuff all the time. Oh, my God. They have done such a good job at FICO of making you believe that that is an actual indicator of your success. Your FICO score is not an indicator of your success. All you've done is successfully pay payments and interest to the bank. It's the only way you get a FICO score. I've got an 880. Well, I'm sorry. That probably cost you about a hundred grand. I mean, really. You can get, your aunt could die tomorrow and leave you $10 million. You know what that would do to your FICO score? Nothing. Because your FICO score is not an indicator of your net worth. Your boss could walk in this afternoon and raise your income to a million dollars a year. You know what that would do to your FICO score? Nothing. Because a FICO score is not an indicator of financial health. It's not an indicator of a big income. It's not an indicator of a big net worth. It's not an indicator of a big investment portfolio. A FICO score is an indicator that you've borrowed money and paid it back a lot. And the higher your FICO score, it mean, the more it means the more you've done this over and over and over and over again. So this worshiping at the altar of FICO represents stupidity on your part. Stupid. Because you're using a false measure of success. It is not a measure of financial success. Unless you consider paying lots of interest and payments to the bank success. It's the only way that your FICO score develops. And case in point is, if you never borrow money, you'll never have a FICO score. Case in point is, if you pay off every single account and close all of them, and you have a net worth of tens of millions of dollars, and you make a bazillion dollars a year, and, and your FICO scores zero. That's me, by the way. Okay? I have a zero FICO score. I'm not borrowing money in 20 years. All the accounts are closed. They're not just zero balanced. They're closed. I don't owe a soul and haven't in 20 years. And... and Plus, over 20 years. And so I don't have a FICO score. But here's how stupid our culture is. 
I can wander over here to the local apartment complex with some little 27-year-old apartment manager who reports to somebody, I live in Nashville, and they report to somebody in New York or Atlanta, and I fill out an application to rent an apartment, and because I don't have a FICO score, their, their, their thought train is so backward and stupid, they won't rent me an apartment. Now, I can write a check and buy the whole freaking complex, but I can't rent an apartment there. See, that's how stupid this is and how culturally backward it is. So, if your goal is to buy nice furniture for the bank lobby, then run your FICO score up. If your goal is to make sure that the windows are cleaned on that 100-story tower in the downtown skyline of your city, and that's a bank tower, if your goal is to make sure the window washers there get paid, then run your FICO score up. If your goal is to make sure the stock at General Motors or Ford or Lexus that their stock price goes up because their profit has increased because they've funded more car loans and made interest on you, then run your FICO score up. But if your goal is to change your family tree and become very wealthy and outrageously generous, if your goal is to have tens of millions of dollars in order to make sure that your family generationally is shifted and that you have the ability to be unbelievably outrageously generous, if that's your goal, then screw FICO. Why are you giving them money? Why are you giving banks money to run up a false measure of success? It's not a proper measure of success. But all these dadgum broke financial geniuses that work with you or that'll be at Christmas dinner in your family, well, you need to protect your FICO score. <laughs> about how People, much? Um, about 3000 The most I paid for one was like 42 And I'm cool with that because they'd be good. They'd be like 2013s. Right. Uh, 2013 and up. So 2013 and up. It doesn't have to be that. But that's what, if you want them to be using it for like Lyft and Uber, you you get 2013 and up because they starting to, you know, every year they make it to where your car got to be a higher year. So where where do you, where do you find the people that want to get it for that particular purpose? Like Lyft and Uber? uh, You can put it on the, uh, they get it around in the higher car. And and you also can get around or hire cars. Yeah, That's a website you can do that. that. You can do that too. But for me, uh, I found it better on personal. So I went and did that, written them out personally. So once you know people know you for cars, they know you for cars. Okay. Yes, because I, I want to get into that mm-hmm. because one day I like to be you know do the personal. It's just I'm so afraid that if it's not on this, because first off, Toro's gonna take. 30%. They killing it. Of your income. They winning. We, I was just talking to Brandon the other day. They winning. Like, yo, they created a website where I can find you and you give me your car 
and they're in the middle and take 30% of all these transactions. And they don't own any cars. Are they going public? I'm not sure. And if they do, I'm probably going to buy in. I'm invested yeah, in that. for sure. That's amazing. Yeah. Amazing business model. Awesome. But that's the security. That's the security because if so, they crash your car, they steal your car, Tura takes care of it. Kind of. You got to know, you got to do it the right way. Talk that's what, me. that's the only reason I made the course. Cause I seen people that the well, other than the fact that I wanted to actually teach the business that I do and make a million millionaires, I wanted to teach it because people don't know how to use Toro the right way. So they be a lot. If you follow, if you get on the forum, it'll scare you to death. If you get on the Facebook, <laughs> if you get on the Facebook Toro forum, it'll scare you to death out of wanting to rent anything on Toro because you're going to hear all the horror stories. But the only reason you see the horror stories is because people don't follow the steps and things like I teach in the course on the, the pre-trips, like what you need to have, like 80 plus photos inside, outside. You got to cover every part of that car because if you take a picture of the car from a wide range and it doesn't see that part that actually gets hit before the trip, they will not cover you. If you got tires under 432 tread depth and the customer even mentions the word tires bald, they're going to investigate. And if you don't got paperwork from a week of or a tread depth reader on your pictures the day of that trip before they took the car, they're not going to cover you. It don't matter if they totaled it. They don't matter if they stole it, whatever. They're not going to cover you because, well, not stole it, but they won't cover you if you had the tread def tires, the tire tread def messed up. So so if they get in an accident, mm-hmm. right, even if the tires are still there intact, you can go look at the tires to see if the tread depth is under four, mm-hmm. oh, it's on point. Yeah, yeah. If they just say out of their mouth, you know what? I don't know if the tires had good tread. They're just not going to cover it. And no, they're going to investigate it. So, investigate and it. once they investigate it, if you don't have your paperwork from the week of, and you don't have a tread depth reader picture with you with your damn tread depth reader in that tire, after they said that, and they look at the pictures and they can't tell, like you could, you didn't take a picture of your tread, right? If they can't tell that those are good tires, which they won't, because they're going to want to not cover it because you didn't follow the guidelines by using that tread depth reader mm. or a coin to show how deep it is in the tire before the trip, they're going to not cover you. It's just, it's, I've seen it. I mean, it happened to me before. So, um, like, a, somebody smacked the car. It's clear. They admitted to it. I was driving drunk. I smacked the car. I ran into the median. But they did say... That the tires was bald. <laughs> Brand new car. Wow. You know what I'm saying? They ain't cover it. So then you got to use your own personal insurance. You know what I'm saying? So. That sucks. Yeah. So what you want to do is. And that raised your rate. That raised your personal insurance. You don't want to yeah. use your personal insurance though, right? Yeah. Well, uh, I say like this. You never want to lie to your insurance company. But you definitely got to know that insurance is a game of words. So you can be covered in any situation. You never lie, but you definitely want to make sure you don't, you omit the right things. Give me, give me, get, walk, walk, walk. So let's say this. If you ask me, um, why was, why was Shams driving the car? And I say, I gave him permission versus I let I rented the car to him. They won't ask directly if you rented the car to him. They're going to just say, why was you driving? He was a permissible driver. I gave him permission. This is true. 
But also, if you rented it, that's also true as well. But I choose to omit the fact that it was rented, it'll be covered. Does that make sense? So it'll be covered if I give you permission. It's not going to be covered if I rented it to you. No, because it's commercial use, and this is your personal policy. And also, another people don't. Other people it's don't a know. Game of words. It's all about words. It'll always be covered, but you got to know what you're saying. Don't lie. They directly ask you, then tell the truth because yeah. you don't want to lie. But if they don't directly ask you, make sure you protect yourself. By saying, yeah, I gave him permission to The state of Nevada has a number of provisions which are designed to protect animals. Uh, most significantly is NRS section 206.150. Killing, maiming, disfiguring, or poisoning animals that belong to other people. And what's really important is that it covers not just dogs and cats, it covers all animals. If you are charged with killing somebody else's animal, you face a category D felony and imprisonment of up to four years. If the animal involves livestock, it can be a category C felony where the penalty is up to five years in state prison. King Von is one of the newer rappers in the Chicago hip-hop scene. With his hottest track, Crazy Story, doing over 30 million views on the World Star Hip Hop YouTube channel at the time of this recording, King Von is making a rather impressive name for himself in Chicago hip hop. But what makes King Von's career even more iconic is the fact that King Von hasn't even been rapping for a year yet. He claims that the only reason he got into rapping was because he's done everything else and not because he had some sort of knack for rapping. What King Von mainly means by that is that he's done almost everything when it comes to the streets. So all he has left to do is tell his stories and experiences through his music. Even though King Von doesn't have an extremely lengthy rap sheet like some of his peers, King Von definitely has a unique criminal history due to the outcome of some of his cases. Well, without further ado, here is an exclusive inside look at the criminal history of King Vaughn. King Vaughn's first run-ins with the law were not very well documented due to the fact that he was a minor at the time of his arrests. But luckily, he gave a little bit more detail of those arrests in an interview with DJ Small's Eyes. In the interview, King Von mentioned that his first arrest was for an armed robbery where apparently he robbed someone at gunpoint and stole their car. When King Von was caught, the police sent him to a juvenile detention center where the charges against him were ultimately dropped due to King Von being so young at the time. But the only way to make this deal work out was that a judge required King Von to attend a boot camp for a certain amount of time. For the other three arrests, King Von gave almost little to no detail, but apparently one of them was for possession of a firearm. King Von didn't say how this case ended, but we can probably assume that he was sent to a juvenile detention center and got convicted, but 
under a certain type of condition where it gets taken off of his record after he turns 18. King Von also mentions that he was locked up at one time for 15 months, and the time before that for 14 months. Von gave no details as of why, but it apparently happened. King Von's next arrest happened when he was only 19 years old, in 2014. According to authorities, King Von was at a party when a guy named Malcolm Stuckey was steady eyeballing him. King Von must have taken offense to this because he then grabbed his friend Michael Wade and left the party in a gray vehicle. Around 45 minutes later, King Von and Wade returned to the party but parked in an alley near the home. The two then got out of the car with loaded guns and headed to the front of the residence. Malcolm Stuckey and two other people were sitting on the front porch when King Von and Wade opened fire on them. Stuckey and the other man fled down the sale street, but both ended up getting shot. The other man on the porch was shot as well as he was attempting to run inside the home. In the end, three people were critically wounded, but Malcolm Stuckey unfortunately got shot in the head and died later that day. After the shooting, King Vaughn and Wade ran back to their car and fled. Both of them ended up getting arrested days later. During the investigations, over 20 shell casings were recovered, and Wade even admitted to police that he had fired a gun 15 or 16 times at one of the victims. King Vaughn, on the other hand, refused to talk to the authorities. The two were held without bond and were facing life in prison for charges of first-degree murder and two attempted murders. After sitting in jail for three and a half years, the trial finally began. The trial lasted a total of five days and the outcome is, honestly, surprising. Wade got sentenced to 28 years in prison, while King Vaughn was acquitted of all charges. After three and a half years in Cook County Jail, King Vaughn was free. Since his release, King Vaughn was staying out of trouble and began rapping. Vaughn also moved to Atlanta to be around his good friend Lil Durk, who is also an extremely successful rapper. With a promising future ahead of him and all while being surrounded by many other successful people, you would think that King Vaughn would never risk all that to commit some stupid crime. But sadly, that was not the case. Because on May 17, 2019, King Vaughn was arrested once again in Fulton County, Georgia. Sources say that King Vaughn was involved in a shooting that occurred on February 5, 2019 at the parking lot of the Varsity in downtown Atlanta. Officers apparently responded to a call at around 5.45 a.m. after gunshots were reported in the area. When they arrived, they found a 23-year-old man shot to the lower extremities. The man was found outside of his vehicle in the parking lot and was taken to Atlanta Medical Center in serious condition. Thankfully, he survived. After three months of investigation, police determined that King Vaughn was the alleged shooter and eventually ended up arresting King Vaughn moments after that conclusion was made. King Vaughn is still locked up to this day and is being held without bond. 
Sources close to the situation say that the man King Von shot was attempting to rob him and that it was done in self-defense. Internet detectives are speculating that King Von will get three years, while others say he'll get off completely. I teach uh, joint ventures and brokering method, right? So just like me and you actually spoke about this. Yeah. So what I do is- That's the is, car out there, the Carvette. Right, that thing gonna that's go, yours. that thing, that's hotcakes. That's yours. So, you know, I meant, you to, bring you, I meant to bring you a keychain, so I normally get this keychain to people who get into the, the brokering or joint venture thing with no me. More. Just to make sure you know you part of the click now. I was going. like a Rockefeller chain. Is that boy? Like a chain. Yes, sir. Okay, we good. I like that. Yo, we gotta get them. We, get, we gotta get them. Everybody who got a chain on, they mess with Mitch, and Mitch got the whips going Straight crazy. Like All right. So, long story short, so I get into joint ventures with people, and I broker with other people who have rental car agencies. Mm -hmm. So you have Maddie J on here. We do this together as well. So he has cars that I use in my network as well and rent out as my own. How do you do this? You learn the game, you master it, you learn the ins and outs of it, then you can talk the talk, also walk the walk, so you know what you're doing if something happens, right? Mm -hmm. So if something happens to this car, I know exactly what to do because I've been running it for five years. So if I take yours, I know exactly what to do as well. I know the terminology to say, I know the, the contracts to have, I know the mechanics to know, I know the tire people, I know everything I need to know. So if I go tell you what I do, mm -hmm. what you gonna do? You gonna be like, I'm giving my keys to Mitch. Sure, I'm gonna let him run it. If, if me and you broker a deal, um, I know what you want minimum per day. I charge on top of that. We both making money, everybody's happy. If I got five years of clientele, why would you not? Why would you want to sit there and build up your own clientele? You can just give it to me and go work and go have a, a, a dope podcast coming here and you can go have to worry about the cars because Mitch worried about it because he got a whole staff and a whole lot out by the airport that can have as many cars as you need. You feel wow. what I'm saying? Let me ask you real quick. With this network of cars, mm -hmm. what do you think, and not in your, in your personal pockets, but what's like some of your revenue per month from this car rental business? Me, uh, now I'm doing $200,000 months, and it's getting pretty consistent. So uh, on the average, I average like about 120000 and that's what my CPA says. Mm. That's what the revenue is looking like, and that's just because uh, I'm getting a lot of bookings. Like, I don't just have the car sitting there picking up cobwebs. We get creative. We get creative. We go to golf courses. We hand out pamphlets. We make it make sense. Y'all doing the work. Man, we doing tours. We doing rental, uh, luxury rental car tours. I get deals with the uh, the valet companies in front of the W, leave them parked in front of the W, and then let them know, hey, look, if you tell them the, they can drive this for with no deposit, how do they drive with no deposit? I'm be in the front seat with them. I let them get in it, charge them 150. We take a tour around 400 in a Lambo. Then they get in the rentals. They passing out. Oh, when I came to the W in Atlanta, this dude, Mitch, he had me with the Lamborghini and the I-8. Man, come on, bro. I get creative. All right. So that, that I, I wanted to, like, give people, like, where we are today. But now I got to take them back how we started. Okay. I got to I gotta take them way back. Because he keeps telling people he worked for me. And he, Oh, yeah, I work for this me. guy. This is like my low-key, my ex-boss. <laughs> this is fire. <laughs> hey, and I'm on my boy podcast going crazy. That's okay, lit. Okay, just, just walk, walk me through where you were. Okay, so um, clearly I used to work for this guy, but when I worked for him, I, I had a nine-to-five as well. So Working I, where? I used to work for the city of Atlanta. I used to do corrections. Mm. And I could fight, so I used to teach the defensive tactics as well. Mm. So I teach people how to shoot. 
and I teach people how to fight. And I was in the jail and I was like miserable. Like I'm getting a lot of mental wear and tear because mm. you see a lot of horrible truths when you work in a jail, man. Mm. So I was working 16 hour shifts. Like they do mandatory voluntary overtime. So I'm working 16 hour shifts. Um, what were some of the things that really affected you walking, like just working there? Working in the jail, just seeing like how, how many of our people are there and they basically remind you of like slavery didn't end for real. Like this is where it is because you get to see that they got these work details that they put the inmates on and they go out on the street and they do things. They go to the cities and they be- go to the bando houses and fix them up, trim the hedges. They go out on the side of the highway, pick up the trash. They go out and clean out underneath the pathways where the homeless people stay, yep. and they clean all that stuff out. They're doing work, literally, for free. You get what I'm saying? So you can kind of see how the concept of slavery never ended. It's actually, we just numb to it because we don't think about where the people actually go mm. when they go to jail. So I'm seeing that firsthand every day. It's mm. tearing me up, and I'm a thinker. So I'm sitting there thinking the whole time, like, oh my God, this is horrible. Right. Like, you know, it's inhumane anyway. Nobody should really be in jail. It's not even rehabilitative. They're not getting rehab when they yeah. go there. They're just going there for a second and just living in a horrible situation. Mm. You get what I mean? And then you get to where I was working at, like they can't even take a shower every day. They got shower days. Just think about not being able as a grown adult, not being able to take showers when you want to. You gotta take when they tell you. You gotta eat when shower they tell days. you. days. Yeah, it was crazy. It wasn't, it was different. So me seeing that every day tore me up. And then I'm associated with police right. now, just working for corrections. Right, right. Which is beneficial to me now because I have my badge, and when I get pulled over, I can show it, and I'll get a ticket. <laughs> but it's not beneficial to me when uh, I'm associated with, with all the stuff like the Mike Brown, mm-hmm. Michael Brown, and Trayvon Martin stuff. That stuff happens, and you're associated with police. Yeah, you know what I mean. So I was dealing with a lot of mental battles. Yeah. So I, I was I was dying for a way to get out, but. Luckily, because I worked at the reason. Open and gross lewdness is a common charge that we see filed in Las Vegas. And usually it has to do with somebody who inappropriately touches somebody else, usually at a club or a bar. It's a very common charge. Often somebody who's charged with an open and gross is, uh, is someone who's been drinking, somebody who has no criminal record. Maybe they thought the contactor was invited and they misinterpreted social cues and didn't realize they were do so, doing something wrong. Or as a result of consuming alcohol, their inhibitions were, were low. And they, they did something that maybe they wouldn't have done when they were sober. The significant uh, issue relating to open and gross lewdness in the state of Nevada is it's considered a sex offense and it requires registration as a sex offender. So what might seem like a playful touching after a few cocktails could end up being something that requires you to register for life as a sex offender. So the consequences can be quite severe. I'm attorney Michael Becker of the Las Vegas Defense Group. If you've been arrested in Las Vegas or anywhere in the state of Nevada, call us at 702-DEFENSE. We'd be happy to talk to you about your case. 
anus. Committed in a cold, calculated, and premeditated manner. And lastly, it was committed by a criminal gang member. Now for that one, things as simple as tattoos can prove that you're a gang member. Even though we know that just because you have a tattoo doesn't mean that. And just because you call you and your friends your gang or whatever, doesn't mean you're a part of an actual gang. But the system likes to play loose and fast with the criminal gang charges. Funny enough, they're actually doing the same thing to Lil Durk and King Vaughn in Atlanta right now. But that's a separate story. Now here's how the trial is going to play out. Murder trials usually last 3, 5, 10 days. Depends on how much material they have to present to the jury. The first day is jury selection and maybe a witness or two. But in the Melly case, as far as we know, there are no witnesses. The killings happened on a lonely stretch of road near the Everglades, which is why the prosecutors desperately wanted Bortland to turn state and testify against Melly. Looks like that's not gonna happen. Day two will be workers from the crime scene. DNA experts, detectives, timeline witnesses, and if they had the murder weapons, they would maybe ask the gun shop owner or whoever to identify that yes, they did indeed sell this gun to Melly. But in this case, they can't because they don't have the murder weapons. See, the police believe that Melly shot both boys from the back left seat. Then he got outside and sprayed up the right side of the car to make it look like a drive-by. Then the detectives claimed that Cortland Henry helped Melly with a cover-up, dropping the victims off at the hospital around 4 o'clock in the morning, fabricating a story that concealed Melly's involvement while he was able to later retrieve and dispose of the weapons. Now, I don't know if any of that's true. That's just what the police claim. The timeline goes something like this. At 3.20 in the morning, Melly and three friends were seen on CCTV video surveillance, leaving the New Era recording studio in Fort Lauderdale. They got into a Jeep Compass and drove off. Bortland was driving, Melly was in the back left seat. The two victims were on the right. When Corlin got to the hospital around 4.30 in the morning, he told police that they were victims of a drive-by at an intersection on Miramar Parkway. But the police say there were no reports of gunshots in that area. Instead, they believe the shooting happened far west, near a waste treatment plant. And to back this claim, the police are using cell phone records to say that Bortland lied about the path he took to get to the hospital. And they also claim they got the canine dogs to sniff the area, and that somehow shows that there were no other vehicles present on the road, so it couldn't have been a drive-by, according to the police. Now after all that, day three of the trial is usually the prosecutors will have the family of the victims to be the last to testify. Then that same day, the prosecutors rest and the defendants, basically Melly's team, calls their witnesses to establish the defense. Most of the time, you don't even need witnesses. They can oftentimes argue it successfully that the prosecutor just did not meet the burden of proof. The evidence has to leave the jurors firmly convinced. That's the purpose of the trial system. Then after day three or five or however long it takes for that whole process to go out, you would wait maybe 20 minutes, 20 hours, even 20 days, whatever it takes for the jury to reach their verdict. And then we're gonna find out if Melly's guilty 
or if he's innocent. Now, I know that all this together sounds like the police are gonna crucify him, right? It sounds like they're gonna win, open and shut. However, what people gotta realize is, without a witness, without a murder weapon, and without DNA of Melly at the crime scene, the state has a tough case to argue, especially when Melly paid a big bag for some heavy-duty lawyers that know how to poke holes in the prosecutor's arguments. What I think could be really important is this alleged phone recording that Melly has on his cell phone admitting that he's guilty. Nobody in the public has heard it, but the prosecutors are hyping it up like he's on camera admitting that he did it. But since nobody's heard it, we don't know how detailed that is. Now I wanna know what you guys think is gonna happen in the comments below, but keep in mind, this is not a federal case. When the feds come knocking, it's usually a 95% success rate. They get your ass, pause. But this is a state case. And last I checked, like the murder conviction rate in Florida is 59% or something like that. And if you wanna know how good Melly's lawyers are, they almost got the judge to agree to let Melly go on medical release during the whole COVID thing to a fan's house. Maybe the fan lived near the Broward County Jail or something, I don't know, but it's in the documents. Melly's team made a motion to send Melly over to a fan's house to recover from COVID away from the contaminated jail. And the dude, John Phillips, who's representing the victim's family, basically roasted Melly's team for trying to get that to happen. He also said that the fan allegedly had a young daughter in the house, which should disqualify him from housing someone who's charged with murder. Needless to say, the motion was denied, but this just goes to show that Melly's team is playing the win, bro. They'll try. The majority of automobile searches involve situations where a driver simply consents to the search of his vehicle. You, as the owner of a vehicle, have the absolute right to not consent to a search of your vehicle. If law enforcement believes they have probable cause, they may choose to search your vehicle without a warrant, or they may choose to detain your vehicle to such time as they can get a warrant from a judge for permission to search the vehicle. But if a law enforcement officer asks you for consent to search, you have the absolute right to say no. They may try to tell you, look, we're going to get a warrant. All you're doing is delaying the process. And only you can decide whether under those circumstances you wish to consent rather than avoid delay. My suggestion is to simply say no when asked by law enforcement for permission to search your vehicle and instead call your lawyer right away. Most commonly, we see consent come into play in sexual assault scenarios, but we also have a statute in Nevada that's commonly known as statutory rape, but in Nevada we call it statutory sexual seduction under NRS section 200.368. Now, the age of consent for sexual activity in the state of Nevada is 16. If somebody engages in sexual activity who is 13 or younger, by law, they are simply unable to consent in sexual activity. If they're 14 or 15, they cannot consent for sexual activity, but those charges are prosecuted as 
statutory sexual seduction, the penalties for statutory sexual seduction in the state of Nevada depend on how old the accused person is. If the person is 21 years or older, it's a category C felony that would subject an individual to up to five years in the state prison per allegation. If the person is under 21, it's a gross misdemeanor with a maximum of 364 days in jail per each count. Additionally, conviction for statutory sexual seduction can require an individual to register as a sex offender for life in the state of Nevada. Will sealing my criminal record in Nevada restore my gun rights? Getting a criminal record seal in Nevada does not restore the person's gun rights. The only thing that restores a person's right to own and possess a firearm in Nevada is a governor's pardon. Not all Nevada pardons restore gun rights. So when people apply for a pardon, they have to be sure to check the box on the pardon application indicating that they want to get their gun rights back. If a person has their gun rights restored under a Nevada pardon, federal authorities cannot later use the pardon conviction to prosecute him or her for unlawful possession of a firearm under federal law. But some states are stricter than the feds and do not allow people to have guns in their states even if they were pardoned in Nevada. So always research a state's gun laws before traveling to another state. Pardons are very rarely granted in Nevada. To increase the odds of success, people are advised to hire an attorney familiar with the pardon process to write their application and appear at their hearing. If you are facing criminal charges in Nevada, call my legal team at 702-DEFENSE. The attorneys at the Las Vegas Defense Group will do everything to try to get your case resolved as quickly and favorably as possible. I'm here with Premier Las Vegas criminal defense lawyer Michael Becker. And, and Michael, people call us all the time uh, and they ask us, with regard to battery domestic violence, uh, normally it's a misdemeanor, but sometimes it can be a felony, right? Well, when, when is it a felony? There are several circumstances which can result in a battery domestic violence situation turning into a felony. Uh, first, if you have a third time battery domestic violence, that would be a felony. So if you have two, two prior domestic violence convictions, then third is automatically a felony. That's correct. Also, if there's a battery with strangulation, that can be charged as a felony. If there's a, bad, a battery with substantial bodily harm, that can be treated as a felony. And if there's a battery... Uh, with use of a deadly weapon in a domestic situation, that would also be treated as a felony. Now, this, this substantial bodily harm, so you're saying even if the person has no prior record, 
um, if if they cause injury to the uh, you know to the alleged victim in this case, then it can be charged as a felony. What kind of injuries are we talking about? Because usually the police come, you know, maybe there there's some redness or some scratches. I mean, is it superficial injury like that, or is it like something real serious? Well, I would say if it's superficial injury, typically we expect to see those cases filed as misdemeanor, mm-hmm. battery, domestic violence. But the more serious the injury is, the greater possibility that it could be filed as a felony charge. And ultimately, that's up to the discretion of the prosecutor's office uh, when they make a filing decision as to whether or not to file it as a misdemeanor or a felony. And even if it is filed as a felony, then um, as a criminal defense lawyer, many times you're able to uh, uh, sometimes get it reduced to a, a misdemeanor or uh, or even get the, the case dismissed. That's right. A lot of factors come into play. Um, and it's not uncommon to see a, a domestic violence case filed initially as a felony, but negotiated down to a standard misdemeanor battery, battery domestic violence. Again, a lot's going to depend on the circumstances. Sometimes it could have to do with the willingness of the alleged victim to step forward. Sometimes it could have to do with the, the merits of the allegations and, and the fact that there's a second story uh, that the defendant might have that totally contradicts the accuser. The, so, the client may have acted in self-defense or the, the injury may have happened as a result of an accident. And, and oftentimes that occurs and it, it looks to the police when they get there like there was domestic violence. That's correct, and I would say the the most common scenario that we see is that the initial aggressor ends up getting the worst of it. So maybe the person um, that was hurt was struck with a blow that was that was thrown in self defense, and the the police come and they typically jump tend to conclusions. To, yeah, they they often jump to conclusions and they often tend to arrest the man. Well, often the man or alternatively the one that doesn't have the worst injury. But, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you know, one is the victim and the other is the perpetrator. That's correct. So you really have to, in domestic violence cases, you really have to sift through all of the evidence, speak to all of the witnesses to get the full story. And, uh, you know, if the DA realizes that they may have gotten it wrong, you present the evidence to them, and often you can negotiate a reasonable resolution. And if the DA doesn't agree, then often you present your case to a judge or a jury and, and go for a not guilty verdict. That's correct. I think we see trials in these types of cases at a higher percentage than you would in other areas of criminal defense law. I'm attorney Michael Becker with the Las Vegas Defense Group. If you've been charged with battery domestic violence, we know there are two sides of the story. Call us at 702-DEFENSE. Let's hear your side of the story. And let's see what we can do to help you get your charges reduced or dismissed. Chase does soft pulls. If you have a Chase credit card and your utilization uh, rate shoots up, on your other credit cards, 
don't use Chase because your score drops and your report drops. If your report drops, leave Chase credit card alone. If you start using it abruptly, they go do a soft pool and see where your report is at. I had a student who had a $36,000 Chase card. Her utilization shot, her score dropped some and Chase dropped her from 36000 to 4000 she ran an Amazon business. She was doing her fulfillment with this credit card. Mm-hmm. Life stops now. Yeah. For oh, sure. this what you was making money? Oh no, life over. Damn. Because you weren't aware of the rules. And I tell you, you have to know which credit cards to use and when. Know if your credit drops, leave certain cards alone because then they'll come and revoke the limit. Mm. And that's when I say, okay, I built out who's gonna give me what. They're gonna verify on the backside. So I know, okay, we can get these cards, what we can do with them, how we can utilize them to our advantage. I know we're gonna use these ones because they're gonna verify up front, but they're never come, they're not coming back doing soft pulls later. We made it, we made it. Right. We got it. Okay, cool. We out of here. These are the things that I educate people on because we have to know how to use these credit cards. Yeah, how to play the game. Because they told us, you know what they told us. Credit cards are only for what? To buy, I mean credit. It's mm-hmm. to buy a house, get a car, and you get a credit card, and you only put gas on it. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. You right. only put gas on it. 30% utilization didn't right. even uh apply growing up. It was just put gas on it, pay it off, yeah. keep it for security purposes only, emergencies mm-hmm. only. That's out of the window now. Yeah. We we live off of this. Yeah. I make doctor money off having good credit. Mm. That's very interesting. That's why I didn't get into another business. It became my business. Right. I started learning credit and I go, everybody's scared of it. Why? People started talking and teaching, but they still teach out of fear. I see other leaders who talk about credit still teach out of fear mm-hmm. of what not to do and how to how to kind of and it's like, yo, why do we have this fear mindset of something we all are are granted access to. Everybody born is granted access to credit. Mm. Why am I? Why would I be scared of it? Yeah. Let, let me. Why? Explain the difference between what you teach your. What What do you teach your students about debt? And the second part is, do you float a lot of debt yourself? So, debt. That's well. That's I guess you're at a point where you're making more money, but no debt. That's the that's the issue of why we leverage credit, right? Mm-hmm. If I can leverage credit to eliminate my debt, we won't have any. See, if I can make money off of credit cards, mm-hmm. when do I go into debt? Make money off of credit cards. Remember, I told you you can sell trade lines. Yeah. Okay, if if if. You got a credit card in your pocket and it, it makes you $6,500 every 60 days. When do you go into debt? Because that's realistically what people make. $3,500 a month. Though. Yeah, it's legal. You have to know this is the point, right, where I tell people is that 
Certain banks, they will tell you, frown upon it. They do. You have to know which institutions allow you to operate. Mm. That's the fear part. The people rules won't. of the game. People don't investigate. They go, oh, yeah, you can Google it. People Google it. Are trade lines illegal? No. You're going to get somebody say they're frowned upon or certain banks prohibit the sale of this. They do. You have to know and research the banks that are out here. People think that, oh, yeah, what banks are doing this? And they go and they look at American Express. American Express doesn't report history. People don't know the rules of the credit cards. American so, Express doesn't report history? No. So if I added you to my American Express credit card, you won't get the history of it. But they'll give me 99 authorized users. They won't report the business or the part Because I, I, I got some people on my personal and it raised their score like my family my mom yeah right like it helped their score because it added a positive account it helped with their positive. utilization it, it helped with history. yeah and it helped with the a limit what you put them on so if especially if they don't have credit cards it definitely shoots them up gotcha but it gotcha. doesn't give them how long you had it if you look at it the start date was the date you added it yeah other credit cards They'll give you oh, history. Oh, I get it. So they won't assume my history. They'll be able to get the car and start building their own history. Yes. But they won't get mine. Got yes. it. Getting a battery domestic violence record seal in Nevada is a long and convoluted process with many steps. It also depends on where in Nevada the person was arrested and which court handled the case. That's why it's recommended that people retain experienced counsel in order to help do a record seal for them. In general, the record seal process requires the following. One, the person has to get a printout of his or her police record called a scope. The record must come from the police agency which arrested the person. There's usually a small fee associated with obtaining a scope record. Two, the person has to complete a petition for record seal, which is a several page document. Then the person submits the petition along with a police record to the prosecutor's office, which brought the battery domestic violence charges. It's important to note that prosecutors rarely contest record seals unless the person is ineligible to receive one. Three, if the prosecutor agrees with the petition, the next step is to submit it to the court, which heard the battery domestic violence case. Note, judges rarely deny record seals as long as the prosecutor has signed off on them. Four, if the judge grants the record seal petition, the final step is to mail file stamp copies of the judge's order to seal the criminal record to all the agencies in Nevada that have a record of a person's battery domestic violence case. Examples of such agencies include the Nevada Criminal History Repository and police stations. This also requires a fee to be paid. This entire process can take several months. 
Note that the prosecution is very particular about record seal petitions. They will deny them if the petitioner makes a small procedural mistake on the petition that may have nothing to do with the merits of the case. But even then, the petitioner may correct the mistake and resubmit the petition. It's also important to note that some agencies won't recognize a judicial order to seal records unless it's been embossed with the official court seal, which also costs extra. You don't have to be a resident of Nevada to get a record seal. Anyone who has a criminal record for battery domestic violence in Nevada may petition to have the record sealed, even if he or she doesn't live in the state. But out-of-state petitioners are especially encouraged to retain local counsel because the process requires physically dropping off the petition at the prosecutor's office and afterwards with the judge's clerks. Unfortunately, the record seal process here in Nevada is time-consuming and complicated, so it's always encouraged to obtain the assistance of competent counsel in helping you to achieve a record seal. If you were arrested for battery domestic violence or ultimately you were convicted and would like to have your record sealed, call us at the Las Vegas Defense Group and we'll explain how we can get your record sealed. Remorse now, even though they may want to do it. In, in, in your position of sitting on the bench, my question is, if somebody has pleaded not guilty and went through a trial, and I know that it's a very small percentage in your courtroom, can that person still do something to make amends and to reconcile and say, I was wrong, I wish I got this message sooner, I didn't, or does that come across to you less plausible? Yeah, and I think we've got a whole variety of folks that kind of fit into that equation, right? And I've had a trial where the guy said, I'm guilty for selling drugs, but that gun ain't mine. And so going into trial on that case by saying, I'm guilty of the drugs, I'm not guilty of the gun, then he's lost nothing in, in the credibility standpoint. There's other folks that maybe truly are innocent, and then they will have not lost anything in that situation. And I, you know, I pray to God that we don't convict innocent people, but I know that that does if it happens once, it happens too much. And then there's other folks that are not at that point, and maybe you were at, the, at that stage or not, where you can't own up to it. Um, I think at any point, when somebody owns up to a problem, that's, that's better than none. If, if the person's truly guilty, if that's what we're talking about, then owning up at any time, usually it's 90 days or more between a conviction or a change of plea and sentencing. Um, that's not that long of time, but then in other situations, it's long enough to figure out, I screwed up, I made a mistake, I've done something wrong here and I'm committed to improving it. And I think most judges are really good about judging 
if that's a genuine apology and a genuine attempt to fix it versus I'm trying to shave a few years off my sentence. And I would agree that it's never too early and it's never too late to begin working toward a better life and working toward a, an opportunity to reconcile with society and particularly victims. What thoughts do you have on individuals really come clean during the pre-sentence investigation report, providing a full written narrative to the probation officer that doesn't excuse their misconduct, but rather shows the influences that led that person there? Does that, when you see that at the very earliest stage, such as the pre-sentence investigation report, does that help your assessment or your deliberations over what an appropriate and fair sentence is? Yeah, it definitely does. I, I think it helps for a public defender or CJA counsel to be able to cite to the PSR to say, this is how it got there. You know, this person's father was never in their life. This person sold drugs at this point to get this. This person did these things and that tells the story and puts it all in context. So what we talked about at the beginning of this interview, the sentencing guidelines have no reflection of humanity. It's a grid, it's a chart. And I put you on X, Y chart. On the other hand, the 3553 factors, that statute mandates I put a human face on the individual standing in front of me. And so if there's, if there's things in the PSR that the lawyer can cite to and that the defendant can cite to and talk about it, you're creating your own evidence at that point. For good or for bad, you're telling your PSR writer in the probation office, here's everything you need to know about me and how I got here. Um, that, that is good advocacy, if nothing else. It sounds like you're reiterating what, what, I, what I heard you say at the beginning of this interview and that what Sean and I are always telling people who are reading our materials is that the most important person in the sentencing hearing is the defendant himself. He shouldn't outsource all of his remorse to the defense attorney, but rather should make the investment of time and energy to help the judge see that individual for who he is and what influences led him there. Uh, am I correct in understanding that's what you're telling us? You're correct. And I may backpedal a little bit because the lawyer can help put that together, right? And I, at least in my district, and I can't speak to anybody else's, I have a, a lot of respect for a public defender's office and some of our frequent flyers on the CJA panel. Um, we appoint those people, we're used to seeing them, we've developed a sense of respect. And These generic guidelines in Chapter 3, victim-related adjustments, role in the offense adjustments, obstruction adjustments, multiple counts, and acceptance responsibility. These victim-related adjustments include hate crime motivation, for which three additional offense levels will be added, or 
vulnerable victim for which two additional offense levels will be added, or if, if there are large numbers of multiple victims, uh, it's two additional levels on top of that other two for vulnerable victim. Official victim uh, is a three additional offense level increase, and if you have someone somehow associated with this offense that was a, an official or an official's family member or something, your antenna should go up. Uh, restraint of the victim is a two offense level increase, and if it's a terrorism offense, uh, we add 12 additional offense levels, and this guideline is somewhat unique, very unique for a Chapter uh, 3 adjustment, uh, and that is it sets a floor, a floor of 32. And it was by adding 12 levels, if you haven't gotten to, to a floor of 32, by adding 12 levels, you drop on down to a 32 on the sentencing table. This one also has the uniqueness of affecting your criminal history category. We'll talk a little bit about that later. Now, these Chapter 3 adjustments under Part A for victim-related adjustments, some obviously are used more often than others. The ones I'll just sort of point out that you are much more likely to see are vulnerable victim. Vulnerable victim comes up in a lot of fraud cases where you have uh, people that are being defrauded because of their vulnerability. Uh, uh, the restraint of victim comes up in some robbery situations, but, but not terribly much. And I don't think that official victim or terrorism are used hardly at all. In our scenario, did we have restraint of victim? Okay. Now, how many think just off the top of your head that you would add the additional two offense level increase here? Your initial thinking should be, yep, I'm getting ready to add this. However, if the Chapter 2 guideline you have gotten through using, and again, we don't know which Chapter 2 guideline you started with, but if the one you did use has taken this factor into consideration, then do not add it a second time. It's an attempt by the Commission to have you not what some refer to as double count. Basically, the Commission's position has been, unless we tell you to do otherwise, assume as you go through guideline application, probably you're going to be giving these things. So if we didn't have the application note here saying don't give restraint of victim as Chapter 2 did it, you probably should make the assumption the Commission intended for you to give it back there at Chapter 2 and to give it again here. That has been the basic approach, although again the case law is headed in a somewhat different direction. Chapter 3, Part B. Role in the offense, it, it has aggravating role, which can add four, three, or two additional offense levels. Mitigating role, which can reduce the offense levels. Abuse of position of trust or use of a skill, which can increase the offense level. Or using a minor to commit the offense adds additional offense levels as well. Okay, the obstruction adjustments in Chapter 3 at Part C. Uh, there's one for obstructing or impeding the administration of justice. Uh, the other is for reckless endangerment during flight. Obstruction can be obstructing both the investigation, the prosecution, and the sentencing. So there are a lot of things that could occur that would give us two offense level increase that occur after the offense is well over with. Uh, the defendant could be coming in giving some kind of material false information to the probation officer 
uh, in some investigation for the court, and that could trigger that. Uh, or the defendant uh, could, at trial, uh, essentially commit perjury, uh, and the court make the determination there was obstruction occurring in that regard. So uh, there are things that can happen beyond the offense itself uh, that could trigger this obstruction increase. The reckless endangerment during flight, uh, that characteristic occurs, uh, I think, most often in relation to immigration cases where people are coming across the border and there are these high-speed chases and there's a reckless endangerment that occurs. Acceptance of responsibility, Chapter 3, Part E, and that provides for a two-offense level reduction if the defendant clearly demonstrates affirmative acceptance of responsibility for the offense. It does not require that an individual plead guilty to get acceptance of responsibility and get the two levels off. Uh, however, it can't be one of these last-minute sort of conversions where the defense says, oh, now I'm convicted, I'd like to get two more levels off. The commission says that it should be viewed from the position as to what has this defendant done up until the time of trial in terms of behavior that would uh, manifest acceptance. If two levels are given, and only if the two levels have been given, then there's a potential third level off if you're at offense level 16 or higher. In other words, coming down this table, if you're 16 or further down on the table, uh, then it's potentially a third level off. Uh, that one it re requires a couple of different ways. The one that happens most often, we find, is that if the defendant early on will come in and save the It really is the Wild West here in the state of Nevada when it comes to the right to carry firearms. We are an open carry state, which means that anyone who has the lawful right to possess a firearm can openly carry a firearm on their person as long as it's not concealed. There are limitations about certain places that you can't bring a firearm, like for example, a courthouse, but otherwise, you can carry an open firearm on your person. We are also a shall-issue state when it comes to carrying a concealed weapon, which means that if you take a course and you demonstrate your proficiency with firearms, then the state must issue you a permit to carry a concealed weapon. Starting in 2011, you need a separate permit to carry a semi-automatic firearm, but if you take the course and you demonstrate your proficiency, the state must issue you that permit. NRS section 422A defines welfare fraud here in the state of Nevada. And welfare fraud encompasses a wide array of conduct, such as providing false information in relationship to an application for welfare, not disclosing assets or property that you have that may be relevant to the assessment of whether you're entitled to receive welfare benefits, using a false identification in the application process for welfare benefits, not disclosing that children or dependents living in your home are no longer living there when in fact you're receiving benefits. Moving 
from another state when receiving benefits from one state and not disclosing to the receiving state that you've moved to another state. These are all grounds for prosecution for welfare fraud. And the penalties for welfare fraud can be very severe, resulting in potential prison of up to four years, including restitution. Fortunately, more often than not, when prosecuting welfare fraud related crimes, the state is most interested in making sure that state agencies receive full restitution for the amounts of monies that have been paid. So it's very common that we may be able to negotiate a resolution where a, a charge against you is dismissed if you pay restitution in full, or if restitution is paid during the investigatory stages, a case never gets filed at all. Assault and battery. What's the difference between assault and battery? The difference between assault and battery is that a battery ends up with an actual strike, an actual touching, while an assault does not, right? The assault can take place without even striking another person, right? Let's go to battery. Is there more than one type of battery offense in Nevada? Yes, there are many. There are many common forms of battery, right? For example, first let's start out with simple battery. This is misdemeanor battery. It's a battery constituting domestic violence. It's also a misdemeanor battery. Then you go into some felonies. Battery with a deadly weapon. Battery with substantial bodily harm. Now, those are the types of batteries, right? According to Nevada state law, battery is defined as any willful and unlawful use of force or violence upon the person of another, right? Battery can occur against another person, adult, a minor, or even a protected person or a person over the age of 60. Those are kind of sometimes how they'll classify it. So what are the types of people when I talk about protected class? Those basically involve certain professionals are given this special class. These include the following, right? Police officers, firefighters, correction officers, taxi cab drivers, school employees, judges, health care providers, right? Those are part of a protected class. The penalties increase if you commit a battery against one of those persons. What about a simple battery? Well, a simple battery is defined as any non-consensual harmful contact regardless of the injury involved. So this could involve a push, a spit, even a punch. What is a battery with a deadly weapon? Well, it's pretty simple, right? A battery with a deadly weapon is defined as a non-consensual contact with a person with the use of a deadly weapon or, and this could be like a baseball bat. It could be a knife. It could be a gun. It could be anything used to cause substantial bodily harm. What about battery with substantial bodily harm? Battery with substantial bodily harm is defined as a non-consensual harmful contact that results in the loss of a limb or any other type of permanent disfigurement and results in serious felony upgrade for the offense. So, I mean, even if you punch somebody, you break their nose, oftentimes 
a prosecutor will charge it as a battery with substantial bodily harm. Now, what are the penalties for battery? It all depends on what a person is convicted of, right? So if it's a misdemeanor battery, the potential sentence is up to six months in jail. Felony battery, up to 10 years in prison, depending on some of the ones that I previously spoke about, right? So what are the defenses to an assault, right? So each case is unique, but there are different defenses. They vary, right? Some of the common defenses could include as follows, right? There was no reasonable indication that the actions that the defendant was going to take would be considered offensive, right? So, for example, in the assault context, or you could even say self-defense in assault. I had a situation recently where the alleged victim in the case yelled a racial slur at my client, right? You effing spick, he said. Now, my client went up to that person and said, you know what, if you weren't a woman, I'd kick your ass, right? So the prosecutor charged that person with assault. Is that assault? No. Why? Because the person, the defendant, qualified what he was going to do, right? He said, if you were not a woman, I would kick your ass. She was a woman, therefore he wasn't going to kick her ass. The reasonable apprehension of an immediate battery was not reasonable because he never was going to do it. He qualified the language, right? Some of the same stuff with defenses to a battery, some of the common defenses are going to be self-defense and or a lack of intent, right? So on the self-defense side, could be, listen, this person came at me initially and I responded in self-defense. I responded in like kind. Or with regard to a lack of intent, let's say there's a situation where you inadvertently touch somebody, you inadvertently shove them. You're walking, you trip, and you shove them. Is there an unconsensual touching? Absolutely. But was there an intent to hit the person? Absolutely not. No battery. Title in hand. There you go. 2000. Come on. <laughs> Come on. And people, y'all don't know that there's so many people without credit or cash. That would rather pay week to week and go drop Uber and Lyft and make their money and drive Instacart and Amazon Prime and all of that and drive and do all of these things with these cars like this because they're not they're just doing it for a side hustle or they want to make it their main hustle. It's the pandemic. People lost their jobs. Do y'all know how many people want these cars? Mm. Just think about all the people you know personally that probably could use it. Like that you just people, and people don't tap into that market. I'd be like, look, just go ahead and give it to goddamn Ray Ray Keisha. Let her goddamn dry that thing. You know what I mean? She gonna pay the kid, Mitch. And, and, and if she don't, if she don't, I just kiss what you go give it to the person who is and I just keep it make, make it make sense. How do you deal with theft? If you um, steal your cars. I haven't had a stolen car since I've been doing my, my three kill switch method. I haven't had one. Could they still try to steal it? Yes. Have they? Nah. I be kill switching that thing. Yo, when my cars when my car is sitting in the lot, in my lot, they kill switched already. So until we want to move them, 
They ain't moving nowhere. <laughs> so yeah. if you break up in there, got your little machine, you think you're about to go somewhere, you're like, this thing don't even work. Go ahead and go home. Mm. Go ahead and go home. So, but I could chop it off. Um, I could chop it off when they stop. So, so one of the cars got start stop function. They stop at a stoplight. It's out of there. Mm. We we'll go get that thing. How much are those to install? Six. Uh, we pay forty five dollars. Really? Uh huh. Sixty dollars for the device per How device. How much you pay for the tracker? Sixty dollars per device. Forty five dollars to install. Not not. What about the tracker? The tracker is sixty dollars per device. Yo, we're paying two hundred dollars. Hey, look, man, my course is uh. <laughs> Yo, yeah, I'm getting your course. I'm getting my, your course. My, my course is out. So. <laughs> Yo, oh, so real quick, can we? And I, I, I try to ask this um, as respectfully as pro, uh, possible in front of people mm. to help influence your answer. But can we give like a discount code to the people that are listening on my podcast? Absolutely, it's done. What, what's the code going to be called? I, I gotta be something cool. Yeah, shake his head every t- every ten minutes. Uh, social proof. Social proof. Okay, cool. That's dope. Just, there it is. Social proof. Yeah. Right. It's lit. I'm right, gonna give a discount code. Uh, social proof on the co- yo. I this is so messy. Why are we paying two hundred dollars? I, yo, I hear these numbers all the time, man. It's very interesting. <laughs> Goodness gracious! You can let it rock. Don't don't answer. So yeah, yeah, sixty dollars per device. I got another one that's one fifteen per device. That's Gold Star. I, this is what I use. I use Advantage, mm-hmm. and I use Gold Star by Spirian. So a lot of people have trouble finding that when I put just Gold Star. Gold Star by Spirian is the is the trackers I use as well. So if you get them in bulk, they're cheaper too. Uh, I'll go. I'll go get one before I know what cars I got. And you ha- and you have the person install them for you. Mm-hmm. Forty five dollars. And and if you use Gold Stars uh, text, they will install them for forty five dollars. Mm. Hmm. And that's not even just a Georgia thing. Like wherever, wherever. Okay. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Where's um? What cities are not good for car rentals? Uh. I don't know because I think my method works with the economy cars everywhere. Wherever there's an inner city, there's so. people that want to rent these cars for three fifty. So a week. let me let me ask you, and I, I hate to, I, I don't want y'all to think I'm like selling you on the course, but in the course, does it teach just the um, like the tour the Toro joint or how to like buy the economy cars and rent it out personal? Or okay, what? so it it basically teaches my strategies. Mm-hmm. So that's what that's where so like you know like you have Matty J on here his that's my brother For me sure. and him are combined and like our our lot yeah. so he has he teaches his particular method and his style I, I like his my style, style. Too. yeah I teach my style he teaches his style mm-hmm. I've been doing mine in a whole different lane like we just met this year yeah. and I was like how do we not how are we not together like it's crazy and we've been new of each other but yeah. not. From the car rental space, right, though, right, for sure. which is dope. But he teaches his style, I teach my style. And my strategies are basically just creative things. So I just think of, like, creative ways to make it make sense. Like that, like the economy car trick. Nobody, people want to get them to drive the luxury cars. They don't care about economy cars. But they don't understand that people are going to drive these economy cars way more than these luxury cars. When the pandemic mm. happens and you can't stunt no more, 
them things on ice if you ain't in Atlanta. But right. we in Atlanta. Right. So <laughs> they on ice for real. So what you want to do is tap into the market that's not going to ever, they're going to need them cars. And uh, also you can get in that truck game. We got high vans. We got pickup trucks. We got the 26-foot uh, box truck, 20-foot box truck. We got those on Fed's truck. Uh, another app like Toro. Fed. Fetch Truck, F-E-T-C-H, Truck. Fetch Truck. It's another app just like Toro. You can rent your trucks and high vans out for people to rent from you. A precursor or a pre, uh, it has to be the first step a litigant or a defendant takes prior to filing a 2255 motion. Ultimately, they serve the same purpose, but after one is convicted, the first appellate line of attack is a direct appeal. And uh, I would add, by the way, that I did a lot of direct appeal work, too, primarily being the voice of the inmate in prison to their assigned or appointed uh, appellate counsel. Uh, so I assisted a, a lot in that context. But what happens is you first need to exhaust your direct appeal um, avenues of attack before you, you file the subsequent 2255 habeas which is basically the last attempt you can make attacking your conviction. And can you help the audience understand a little bit about the uh, burden that a, that a pro se inmate has to overcome with regard to prevailing on an issue such as ineffective assistance of counsel? Very, very challenging. In fact, you know, it's a funny story because I was known, I, I was very busy, as I mentioned to you in these prisons, because I wasn't a guy who, I wasn't doing it for the money. I, I was many times getting, you know, paid a, a cup of coffee. But what I would tell everyone in prison was that, and, and it would be to the chagrin of many of the jailhouse lawyer competitors of mine, because they were looking to charge real money, is the percentage of success on those type of appeals is no more than one or two percent. It's very, very rare that a person has success on these appeals. And when I when we define success, unlike the typical success definition of a jailhouse lawyer who will say, when we get you back into court and you have an evidentiary hearing, that's defined as a success. A success is either at the end of the appeal, after all the appellate avenues have been pursued by both the government and the defendant, there is either a shortening of the sentence or there is a release of the, of the defendant. That is how a, a success from my perspective is defined. So very, very rarely do you see successes. And you said that you did uh, 11 years. How many 2255 petitions would you say that you prepared? Well over 100. And out of the 100, is it, are we to understand then that only one or two got relief? I had two successes. Out of 100. Those were, and those were shortened sentences. Okay. Were not releases. And let's talk about a 2241. What is the, what is the level of your expect, experiences, which is different, because on a 2241, as you said, you're challenging the conditions of confinement. Um, let's start with the uh, administrative remedy process and what relationship that has to a 2241. 
In order to file a 2241, or as we can speak about in a moment, a compassionate release motion, there are requirements to exhaust what is called administra internal administrative remedies. An internal administrative remedy is filed through the prison itself by the inmate through a series of forms that are submitted at, to a, ver a variety of levels in the B Bureau of Prison process. First, there is a filing with the case manager and counselor, followed by a filing with the warden, followed by, if necessary, a filing with the regional office for the Federal Bureau of Prisons, and finally, with an attorney for the central office of the Federal Bureau of Prisons in Washington, D.C. And that process typically takes three to four months to play out. So after those three to four months, what rights does the person have to begin the 2241 motion? Following exhaustion, which is defined as a conclusion against the inmate by the attorney for the central office, uh, the inmate can move immediately then to file the habeas corpus petition pursuant to uh, 18 U.S.C. section 2241. What is the what is the experience that you have had in prevailing on on administrative remedy very rare once again only in the context really of medical issues where there's an agreement uh typically to send out an inmate for uh private consultation with a private physician outside of the prison that would be my typical request where the inmate felt he wasn't getting uh, a fair shake, if you will, with the, with the uh, health services department in, in the prison and wanted to get a, a professional opinion from outside the prison. I had several successes in that vein. But then, even only then, when this medical condition was very serious. And when a person has other issues in the prison other than constitutional violations, but let's say his he is being harassed by staff members um or he Buns. Corey b says the sacrifice gone wrong sacrifice gone wrong if it was a sacrifice i think he'd be dead i don't think it would have been one shot this is another thing that leads me to believe that it was perhaps an accident. One shot to the head. But getting shot in the head. <sighs> I don't know, fam. I don't know. Donnell Smith, Detroit in the house. If you're just not jumping in, fam, we're talking about R&B singer Anne Marie, who is accused of shooting her side dude in the head in Atlanta on Wednesday. The guy was transported to the hospital 
uh, he is conscious and breathing and is receiving medical treatment. So it looks like he might make it. Although they didn't give a they didn't give a uh, an update on the extent of his injuries. And, you know, n- normally they'll say he's in critical but stable condition, or they'll say he's in stable condition and is expected to make it. They didn't say any of those things. Whether she's innocent or guilty, well, if she's guilty, she wouldn't want him to make it. But if she's innocent, she definitely wants him to survive, to tell the story. It would make it a whole lot easy for her because they are going to push this to court. They're going to try to, they're going to, try to build a case around here. You know, a lot of times those prosecutors, if they see that you're a celebrity, they want to be able to attach their name to your name. You know, they, they, they want to brand themselves by trying to take you down. So, you know, they like to be able to say, yeah, yeah, well, I, well, I, uh, I tried such and such, such case. Yeah, you know, I prosecuted this case, uh, that case, you know, it's all a feather in their, in their hat. You know, it's a game to, it's a game to them, you know? Elton Sam says now she's going to make a song about it. Uh, no time soon. Oh, hold on. Different comment. Says now she's going to make a song about it to get some likes. Voodoo guilt. Somebody going to get those conjugals. <laughs> Sub Mark Jones. So on this one, fam, it's kind of hard to 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 figure this one out because we don't have enough details. Right. It's going to depend on, I think within the next day or two, we'll get more details. It's already been since Wednesday. Oh, let me see on it. Last time I checked, let's see Anne Marie. See if we got a more recent update. Okay, uh, no, it's nothing on her.
Trying to find that info, fam. Nah, that's... Hey, what's up? This your boy, Big Man. You already know what it is, man. So let's get right to it. All right, man. So say it isn't so. Say it isn't so. But I have predicted this. A lot of rappers are going to be getting caught up out here. Now, they talking big stuff online about Hood Rich Pablo Juan. Now, Hood Rich Pablo Juan, for some of y'all who don't know, he used to be 1017 way back in the day. Then he went off and did his own thing. And has been highly successful on the independent tip, man. Dude has been doing his thing. You know, he's got an ill flow. I did a video about Hood Rich Pablo Warren where he had got jumped or whatnot. And a lot of people were taking from that video that I don't like dude. But nah, man, I like dude's music, man. He's dope. It's just that for a minute there, he was looking like a walking lick. You know what I mean? Cass was robbing him all the time, and man, maybe he needed that wake-up call, but maybe he took it the wrong way, because dude went all the way gangster. Now, before we get into the specifics of all this, do me a favor, man. Make sure you hit that like button, make sure you hit that subscribe button, and man, let's get it. Alright, now that we got that out of the way, man, where does this come from? So... A lot of people are saying online that Hood Rich Pablo Juan has been locked up in the feds. Yes, the feds, man. Not the state. Not the local. I'm talking about the big boys. And a lot of people are saying that he's got a Rico case hanging over his head. I said, what? Not Hood Rich Pablo Juan, man. Not the dude who's mostly about flossing. When the world do you have a Rico case for Man, that sounds like something, you know, when you're involved in some enterprising, really running some Tony Montana type of operation. But I guess, man, it was going more, there was more going on than meets the eye. Now, what I mean by saying that is, this story first cracked on Twitter, man. A lot of people put out some information on Twitter. There was a couple of little tweets here and there. And people were saying, Hood Rich Pablo Juan was locked up in a town by the name of Thomaston, Georgia. Now, Thomaston, Georgia is in Upson County. Now, Upson County is kind of in between, uh, say like, it's like in the middle of a, if you were to do like a triangle and you have Atlanta at the top, You'd have Macon on one side, and you'd have LaGrange on the other side, and Up Upson is like right in the middle of there. And I did some digging, man, and I looked up his name because, you know, Hood Rich Pablo Wine's name has been out there a lot. Dude has been arrested a lot. You can see from all these mugshots right here, dude has had his running with the law. I didn't know Hood Rich Pablo Wine was getting it in like that. I mean, a lot of these charges, you know, some of them were, were petty. He even had arrest records in Florida where it was stuff like about, like, you know, petty uh, marijuana charges and stuff like that. So nothing really crazy, but dude does have a lengthy record. And this is this might lead to some to understand what's going on here. So in this latest case, which was posted uh, 
I guess he got arrested on the 21st, or excuse me, the 20th of this month. So the 20th was just a couple of days ago. And I hate to date the video, but man, roll with me. And it has his address and whatnot, and it says charges. Violation number one. Violation number one of the Georgia RICO Racketeer Influence and Corrupt Organizations Act. What? Okay. That statute 16-14-4F. Violation number two of the Georgia RICO Racketeer Influence and Corrupt Organization Act. So he got two violations for a RICO charge, same statute, 16-14-4F. And man, I said, man, what in the world is that? That sounds like something with a lot of time attached to it, man. I ain't trying to do no 16-14-4. Man, what is this? So I went to dig in a little bit more. So this is as recent as the 2010 Georgia Code and Title 16 Crimes and Offenses. Chapter 14, Racketeer, Influence, and Corrupt Organizations. And I guess this is part four. So that's where you get the 16-14-4. And it says this specifically. It goes on to say this. Okay. It says, A. It is unlawful for any person through a pattern of racketeering activity or proceeds derived therefrom to acquire or maintain directly or indirectly any interest in or control of any enterprise, real property, or personal property of any nature, including money. So, to summarize that, basically it's a 